0: Hashem Hashem seven atzliach Shil Torah, good to be back here in Aventura, Baruch Hashem. We, uh, I saw only some of you on uh, Sunday this year, we have in, in Hollywood on Sunday, very different Shil. Uh, anyone that's around on Sundays, you really don't want to miss those Shilrim because they're very different. And uh, it helps me do Tshuva every Sunday. So if it helps me do Tshuva, I'm sure I can help you a little bit too. Uh, very different shiurim, a lot of chizuk, extra siyat of shmaya. I think so, we're packed, we're packed on the Sunday. much packed. So you have to get the actually on time, if you want a chair. I think one or two people were standing. So, Baruch Hashem, we also had a phenomenal, phenomenal Baruch Hashem trip to New York. Uh, one year after another, from the minute that I landed, uh, the shiur started. Mama,sh uh, from the airport to the way to the Bedin in the Bedin. Before the conversion, after the conversion, then we had a chupan kiddushin because two of the converts were getting married same time. After they converted, they got married. Bol Hashem, at the Bedin, very very exciting. Um, uh, so we did a con- four converts, Bol Hashem, and two of them were got married. Two tzedikim. Mama,sh unbelievable, unbelievable people, and um. People always ask me, how long does it take to convert? How do you convert? What do you do to convert? We'll talk about some of these things tonight. Uh, Because we deal with conversions all the time. But uh, people have a warped version of what it takes to convert. It doesn't matter how much money you have, at least not with me. Other people, I don't know what they do. I'm not responsible for other people. It has nothing to do with how much money you have, It, um, it has nothing to do with how many books you read before you met me, and it doesn't matter where you live. What matters is the whole package together, all of it together. Who and what you are, why you're converting, and who is teaching you, what are you learning what do you actually believe? And it seems to me that many people have fallen in love. This is the first time I think I believe in history. Uh, again, I, I wasn't there for the last 7, 6,000 years, but just to my knowledge, first time in history, people have fallen in love with the idea of converting to Judaism, but yet they don't have an idea of what it means to be a Jew. They want to convert, many people call me all the time, oh, I want to convert. Okay, so so what, how long have you, when did you discover? Judaism. Oh no, recently. Okay, so what have you studied? Oh no, no, I watch a few shulim and ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. Okay, fine, okay, so you're reading any books? No, no, not yet, I just watch shulim. Okay, that's already not so good. Uh, what do you know, what do you don't know, why are you converting, why not? Ta-ta-ta-ta. And then you start realizing, they don't know anything. Nothing, they know nothing, like absolutely nothing, in some cases, not all cases. In some cases, they absolutely know nothing. One person told me that they are uh, very, very excited to convert as soon as possible, as soon as possible. They want to convert as soon as possible, I want to convert right away. I'm ready, I don't care if my wife wants to convert, great, if not, I'm divorcing, I don't care. I said, okay, wow, this guy is zealous, wow. And then uh, I said, okay, so what do you know what you don't know? I said, uh, uh, which sidur do you use? Which sidur do you use? He says, what's a sidur? Excuse me? What's a sidur? He says, oh, you want to convert? you want to leave your wife. Maybe you just want to leave your wife. Maybe you want to blame Judaism that you want to leave your wife it takes a little bit more it takes a little bit more mesirut nefesh that this uh, these this couple specifically' I've been working with them for almost two years and uh, specifically the uh, the the Messi Nefesh that they have gone through the sacrifice that they've gone through we all have a lot to learn from it and you should know that in Shemaim you go up to Shamaim after hundred and twenty. They're uh, gonna ask you different questions, and every time you give them, the, you know, an answer that's not a positive answer. Like, for example, did you uh, do tshuva? Ah, did you learn Torah? Ah, did you do this? Did you do this? And all the answers are like so-so, and they're gonna ask you why? Why so-so? Why so? Why why didn't you do everything? Why? Oh, it was hard for me. It was hard for me. And they're going to bring you the converts. The converts that don't have an Abba, don't have a Nima. Hashem is their Abba and Nima. Hashem is their Abba and Nima. They're going to bring you it. the hardest than them. The people that are willing to give up their Abba and Nima. The people that gave up all their friends and family. The people that pretty much realized at 50 years old or 40 or 30 or whatever age that everything they knew was a lie. And they said, Okay, Kapat Avonot, I'm going with the truth. It was harder than you, it was harder. What are you gonna say? Every time I do a conversion, I do chuba. Because I see these people and what they're willing to do for Hashem, it's almost unbelievable. But but there's a lot of people that just want to convert because they like the idea. They like the finished product, they just don't want to do the work. They're spiritually lazy. You tell them, okay. So, what are you reading? What do you? know I'm watching videos. Okay, videos are good, but what are you reading? Do you know Allah Chod Shabbat? Do you know how to be a Jew every day? Do you know anything? And it's a lot of iffy answers. So, when I see a righteous couple, it's very exciting for me because I know this is a good addition. It's a good addition to Am Yisrael. And when I told this couple, "Mamash, I'm um told them, listen, you know, you guys are together, and uh, we're going to convert Bizal Hashem. But you have to get married, t- technically, because you live together, you have to get married the same day. You have to get married the same day. You have to have a chupa Same day, because you live together. I mean, unless you always want to go back, you know, and live in different houses, you have to get married the same day. And it was my mistake, actually, that I only realized this only a couple of weeks, three weeks before the actual official day, two weeks. Meaning we've already been talking about the day of when a conversion is going to happen, and so on and so forth. But it keep my mind that they can actually have to do the the chupa the same day because this is not common. The only one that I know that did chupa the same day they converted was me and my wife. Everyone else that usually has a uh, you know has a conversion usually so far they've been single. So there's no wedding. You know, a couple, a couple, uh, a couple of people that converted together got married later, but they weren't married at that time. They weren't living together. So It was not, not necessary. This is the first couple that was actually, a, uh, they were living together. He said, "Listen, you have to gechupan uh, kiddushim." Now, what do you usually expect is the answer? I tell you from experience. Oh, listen, but we have to have a party, and we have to invite family, and what about our friends? And what about the local rabbi? And what about the local this? And what about this one? And what about that one? And now we're going to have a this. And what about the camera? And what about the. Di- There's a lot. Come on, you can't just have a wedding. If you have a wedding, you have a wedding. And if it's not that, it's like, listen, but how can we do that if all my family and our friends and so on are back home? A lot of different reasons the yetzerah gives you to say, listen, delay the mitzvah. Put yourself at risk to make an avirah huh? and go home just to have a party three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months later. It's very dangerous. It's allowed if you don't live together. But it's very dangerous. Why? Because now you're a Jew and uh, you have a yetzera. You didn't have a Yitzhara when you were not a Jew. So most people tell me you have to get married right away. Immediately, it's, 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 you get a negative answer. This is not, it's not, it's, with this amazing couple, what do they say? Of course, yeah, yeah, of course, no problem, yeah, sure, get yeah, married right away, no problem. Why would we delay it? Like, it was not even a second thought. It was not like, oh, but, oh, but maybe, but if, but ow, and ooh, and ah, and eat, none of that. Why? We're living together. It's not like she's living in one house and I'm living in another house and technically we can get away with it. We're just not going to see each other and not going to be intimate for uh, until we set up this wedding. That's allowed technically. But we're living together. We're not going to take the risk. That's not, that's, on Hashem. that's not the will of Hashem. That's not the will of Hashem. I'm not going to take such a risk. I'm going to get a brand new Neshama and ruin it day one. This Rabotai, for me personally, I mean, it may not seem like a big deal to you guys, but for me personally, this was already a stamp of approval as it, big as it gets. Because even the Halacha and Shulchan Aruch, and if you go even before, you go to Rambam, Mishneh Torah, he talks about Allah for the Gerim, they say, he says, Rambam specifically says, Convert wants to convert, first you tell them, listen, it's difficult, it's this, it's that. You realize last week you lit fire on Shabbat, there was no problem. Now if you light fire on Shabbat, they kill you. No problem. You realize that uh you eat khelev, it's a certain part of the uh animal. Now let to eat that as a Jew. You ate it last week, enjoy. You ate pig last week, enjoy. You ate shrimp last week, enjoy. Now you're a Jew, you can't eat any of that stuff. It's karet. Eating khelev's karet. Karet meaning it's a divine death. Shemin They tell them. Still okay. And they say again, uh, listen, everybody wants to kill us. Why do you want to be a Jew? You realize everybody wants to kill us? Everyone yeah, was to kill us not like today where the Jews run the world. Today they run the corporate America, corporate England, corporate this one, corporate that one, they have a bunch of money, they have a bunch of fame. It's not like today. We're talking about when the halacha was written. In the days of the Rambam nine hundred years ago, with pogroms, inquisitions, What kind of kapat we went through. If you read the history of what happened to different Kailot that they came to Rambam Alava Shalom, Certain keilah came to the Rambam, and he says, Quodagav, the Shimam, these Arabs came to us, tortured us, this, that, and the other, and they forced a bunch of the people to accept Islam. Are they still considered Jewish? Because some of the rabbis locally are saying, No, they're not considered Jewish anymore. And as a Igirat uh, Igirat a famous letter the Rambam wrote. It says they're hundred percent Jewish. They have to do tshuva, obviously, but they're hundred percent Jewish, and all those that go against them are fools, and so on and so forth. You hear read about the stories of what happened at the times of Rashi around the same time. Rashi he machshimam these these Christians, that uh, this uh, Peter the Hermit, he machshimov and uh, all of his followers. First, they took all of us, our bribes because we didn't want to die, so we gave them money. And then they still wanted to kill us. Anyway, and they still killed many of us, burning people alive and all types of things. So somebody comes to Rashi and says, "I want to convert." He tells him, "Listen, they, you know they were killing us last week." He's not joking. He's not talking theoretically. It actually much happened. Somebody comes to the Rambam and says, uh, "Rambam, I want to convert." He's not joking. He's not saying, "Listen, they're trying to kill us." No, he's more saying, it happened two days ago. It, happen, it's, it may happen tomorrow. You really want to convert? That, a person like that, you don't have to test them too much. You still want to convert? They say they convert them on the spot. Those few questions I just told you, a few basic things, Shabbat, a few basic laws, you still want to convert? They convert you on the spot. No, you're going to study for a year, two years, five years, ten years, a hundred years. They convert you on the spot. That's the halacha. now th- Times have changed. Unfortunately, there's a lot of fake converts over the last thousand years, a lot of people converted for different reasons, especially the last hundred years. They converted for money reasons. They converted for uh, you know different types of convenient reasons, marriage, this, that, and created a lot of balagan for all of the righteous converts. So now conversion is a lot of politics, a lot of issues, a lot of delays, so it's very difficult. But still, it's easy. In comparison to the converts of nine hundred years ago, because when the rabbi tells you, "Listen, no one likes us," today he doesn't really mean it. Nine hundred years ago, he meant it. He said, "No, they were trying to kill us." Five minutes ago, Do you remember on the on the way to Shul, they were trying to kill us. Yeah, that was us. They were trying to kill us. What the, you know, what? The, they were trying to kill us. You know, the spear that was at my head—they missed. Was that today? They say no, they don't like us. They don't really mean it. Why? They don't work for us. Because they don't like us, but they keep it quiet. They want to continue working for the bank. They want to continue working for Hollywood. They want to continue, you know, a lot of a lot of Jews. Bolchashem are very successful monetarily. Yes, there's anti-Semitism. Last statistics that I saw said there's 40 percent of Americans admit to being anti-Semitic. Forty percent. What does 40 percent mean? No less than 150 million. 150 million, because there's about 400 million people in America. And so 40%, talking about 160 million, give or take. 150 million people admit they hate you because you're a Jew. 150 million people, what's 150 million people? 150 million people is 10 times the population of Jews around the world, approximately. That's just in America. Not including almost two billion Muslims that hate us. Say, no, not all of them do. Okay, ninety percent. I'm sorry. Ninety percent hate us. Okay, ninety percent hate us. Not all of them, ninety percent, ninety percent, Ninety percent of the two billion hate us, ninety percent. It's not all of them, it's not all of them that hate us. I have a few friends, actually have a friend. His name's Karim. Karim's a very nice guy. We actually joke around for years. I know him from the investment business. Almost twenty years I know the guy. We always mess around. I tell him, so how's your cousin Osama bin Laden? And he tells me, "So, how is your cousin, the uh, Rebbe? So and so. We mess around with each other. We laugh. It's funny. So he likes me. I like him. So he's one of the ten percent. Still doesn't doesn't discount the other. Because many of them don't like us. How much don't like us? Well, they openly say they want to kill us. But still, nonetheless, Baruch Hashem, Hashem has a lot of mercy on us, and He's giving us room." Room to do tshuva, room to improve our emunah, room to do his will. Without as much hardship as the previous generations had. And us fools, we still don't do it. We're actually further from him than we were any other time in history. Almost 80% of Am Yisrael does not keep Shabbat. Almost 80% of Am Yisrael does not pray on a daily basis. A large majority of them have, don't even know the words for Shema Israel, And I don't mean the whole Bracha of Shema Yisrael. I mean Shema Yisrael HaShem Elokeinu HaShem Echad. So the money that He gave us, unfortunately, we're using it against Him. So, when do we wake up? When do we wake up? Wake up when we have wake-up calls. There's different types of wake-up calls. The Gemara says that the gerim, the converts, are like a skin disease for Am Yisrael. And they give multiple the farshim, the commentaries, give different reasons of why the converts are skin disease for Am Yisrael. One of the reasons is because of the Erev Rav. The Erev Rav that we learn about in this week's parasha, Parashat B'Shalach, that also left Egypt, were fake converts. Egyptians that realized that Hashem destroyed the Egyptians, the Jews became the rulers, the slave became the ruler, and the ruler became the slave, pretty much. They said, we don't want to stay with the slaves, let's go with the rulers, let's go with Am Yisrael. With, with and Moshe Rabbeinu converted them. And unfortunately, it was a mistake. It was a mistake because these are the very same people that started the whole sin of the uh, idol worship of uh, the golden calf. These are the very same people that we've been suffering from their sins and their actions for the last 3,300 years. And Azor Kadosh says that at the end of times and right before Mashiach comes these erevrav are not only going to torture us but they're, they're going to torture us from the top meaning they're going to have the top positions in am israel top rabbis top government officials top corporate uh, you know institutions top they're not going to be in hiding and we did a whole shiur about who are the erevrav we did if you remember we also spoke about this wicked guy named uh, Dwek. they are not sure, but the sure is about Erev Rav, not necessarily about Dwek. Dwek was just a side issue within the uh, within the sure. The sure is an intense sure, full of sources. I think we maybe used a little under a hundred different sources. Very, very, Baruch Hashem, uh, very good shiur. Um... It says who are the erevav? Now, what's the key ingredient to knowing if someone is a potential erevav? We can't point out to somebody saying, "Hey, you're erevav." You can't. You're not allowed unless you know for sure. You don't know. So, what are the key ingredients? There's one key ingredient we talked about in the shiur that is already a red flag. It's not a confirmation. No one go out in the street start calling people erevav. Hey, you are malek. You erevav. You uh, malachamav. Don't start doing that. They say, no, no, Rabbi Yoron said it. No, I didn't say it. Don't say things in my name. There's a key ingredient. There's a key ingredient that already puts a red flag. Unfortunately, this key ingredient is found among a lot of good people too. Hence the proof that it's not everyone being out of love. What's the key ingredient? No, you're not your mind. Torah without Yirat Shemayim. Torah without fear of the Almighty. Uh, unfortunately, many people that can learn Torah can even teach it. They have the beard, they have the hat, they have the dress. If they're a woman, of oh, hopefully uh, they uh, speak the lingo. They have the books. They keep Shabbat. But nonetheless, they are the Rav. It's Torah without Yirat Shemaim already is step number one in the wrong direction. It does not mean by default that anyone doesn't have Yirat Shemaim. It's Erevrav Chasm Shemon. Yirat Shemaim is something that we all must, must work on on a day to day basis. Just like you work on breathing every day. You ever forget to breathe? Anybody you ever forget to breathe? You're so busy you forgot to breathe? You know, the Rambam wrote a letter to one of his uh, students. And he says, I'm so busy, I don't have time to swallow my spit. And he was serious, actually. He was serious. Despite being the doctor for the, uh, the, uh, the Egyptian king, he was also a philosopher, astronomer, a scientist of all different types, obviously a head rabbi, a posek. He was a renaissance man. That even the Goyim, to this day, recognize him as one of the 18 most important people that ever lived. If they only knew how much Torah he knew, they'd say he's obviously number one, but what can we do? They don't know what Torah means. But the point is, Rabotai, is that Yirat Shemaim, this key ingredient, is something that if you don't work on on a day-to-day basis, by learning Musar, at least a little bit every day, 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes, an hour if you can, depends. You don't think about shemit Barach. Where are you and where is He? Realize how minute you are, how insignificant you are in comparison to the Almighty. You're never going to have. You're never going to have Yerat Shamayim. The like Gemara Sechad Shabbat says that someone that knows the science of how to count the constellations, different things regarding to astronomy. Someone that know has the talent, has the ability, and has the knowledge, and does not use it. Someone you're not allowed to learn from. Why? Why you're not allowed to learn from such a person? Is because the talent of knowing what's happening in Shamayim with the stars and the moon and with this and all these different things is a very, very unique thing. Why? Because once you realize how significant the creation is, how significant the sun is, how significant the moon is, how significant earth is, how it's spinning in place 1,600 plus miles an hour without moving right or left, not falling... Try to spin something. For two, not sixteen hundred miles an hour, for one mile an hour and see if it doesn't fall. Falls. It's gravity. How come there's not no gravity? Even if there isn't, they say, oh, there's no gravity in space. Why not? Who took it? And even without gravity, you see all the meteors are moving different places. So why there's no gravity? It doesn't mean something doesn't move. Meteors are moving, rocks are moving, so on and so on. It's moving after. We'll ask questions after. So the point is, is that when someone has this has this talent, he doesn't use it. Can't learn from him. Why? He has the ability to understand just a little bit. Whatever we can understand, how significant the creation is, in order to know how significant the creator is. He doesn't use it. Waste of talent. Waste of talent. Is Gemara Masechet Shabbat, I believe, page seventy four a. So, this Yirat Shamayim is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to attain this Yirat Shamayim every day. Think about the creation. Think about the Creator. Think about where you stand in comparison, so on and so forth. There's a lot of different things that you can do to attain Yirat Shamayim. Number one ingredient to attain Yirat Shamayim is to learn Musar every day and realize you must do Tshuva. What's Musar? Musar is the foundation of ethics. Our behavior, our character traits. We see what are we supposed to be and where are we at now. And we compare the two. We are supposed to be people that if Hashem says jump off a cliff, we don't even ask questions. We just jump. We're supposed to be people that have emunah to such an extent when, where there's more money in the bank we're not worried for a second. Why? Shabbat's coming up. We have to get ready. What do you mean? But you don't have money for shopping. It's my business. It's a business. Shabbat. He wants me to have Shabbat. I have to buy stuff for Shabbat. So I have to do whatever I have to do to get to, to buy stuff for Shabbat. Meaning, this is where we're supposed to be. Can't get to overnight. So, today we are at number 88. We're at number 88 of our Musar Pirkei Avot series. And we're going to learn a little bit more about this topic from the first one, the first person that Hashem said, Oh, you have your Who is it? Avraham Avinu. So, if it has to do with the, with the shoe, you can ask the question now. I could just continue. Go ahead. If you read a history book, it talks about European history. And uh, you're going to read about different things that happened years ago. There used to be this Rasha named Martin Luther. Martin Luther killed people for fun. Not Martin Luther King, the guy that uh, was assassinated a a few decades ago. Martin Luther lived a couple hundred years ago. And uh, he decided one day that uh, certain women didn't fit the description that he had. They must be witches. They must be witches. Now, what do you do with witches? Do you give them a broom? Do you, uh, you start a, a center for them, a rehab center, stop being witches? No. What do you do with witches? According to Martin Luther, that he is. what do you do with them? You burn them alive. You burn them alive and make sure everybody watches. And what is he doing in it? He's doing it in the name of religion. He's doing it in the name of God. He did a lot of things like this. I remember when I was in school, public school, many years ago, I took advanced placement, college courses for European history. I was in high school, and uh, there was a paper that I had to write about uh, this specific uh, time in in history. And uh, after I learned about this Martin Luther, I didn't have nice things to say about him. My paper had a nice paper, nice thick paper, and I described him in the way that I felt. The same way I feel now hasn't really changed in 30-something years, or 30 years, whatever, however long, 20-something years, how old am I? Uh, So, I didn't describe him as such a nice person. And the uh, professor, who was a Jew, didn't like the way I described him. Why? He was his hero. He was his hero. So, many people learn subjects superficially, on the surface, for mental stimulation. Like you learn math... You could learn just basic algebra. You could learn 1 plus 1. You could learn 500 times 500. You could learn, you know, uh, calculus, sine, cosine, tangent, so on and so forth, different types of math. But people that really, really enjoy math, the one thing that they like to do is they like to do a couple things. Number one, they like to do math in their head. So they try not to use calculators. Not because they don't know how to use a calculator, obviously. Because they want to stimulate their brain. So you give me any number that you want, and you multiply by any number, or divide it by any number, and you, I can do it in my head. I can do it in my in calculator in two seconds. But if I do it in my head, it's stimulating, it's entertaining. Sometimes people like to read certain subjects, history, or uh, archaeology, or whatever, all different sciences, for mental stimulation, for entertainment purposes. They like it. Now those subjects, it doesn't matter how much math you study. Whatever you study, you're going to know. And in the absence of memory loss, whatever you study now, if you stop studying, six months later somebody asks you the question, what's 500 divided by 10? You're probably going to still know the answer. Even if you stop learning math for six months straight, nothing changed. with history same thing with science same thing with torah it's very different with torah if you stop learning it for 6 months you may remember certain facts like you remember history you remember you may remember certain alakhot like you, you remember certain uh, mathematical formulas but your connection that you had after learning for 30 years straight you had one level of connection, but then you stopped and you didn't learn for six months. You learned nothing for six months. Your connection after that six months, even though you learned for 30 years straight, your connection for after six months of not learning is zero. You have zero connection to the information. It doesn't give you anything in here. It doesn't give you anything here. It's just, it's like math. It's like science. It's like anything else. It's now become mentally stimulating. You may like it. You may not like it. Unfortunately, some people learn for 30 years with that feeling. Why? Because they never intended on learning the Torah because God said so. They learned Torah because it was mentally stimulating. They used it as just another subject. Whether it was math, science, or any other subject, now it's just called Torah. They just added another bookshelf to the library. So many, many people unfortunately learned Torah not because they believe that God gave it to Am Yisrael, but rather because they like it. It's entertaining for them. There's a rabbi here in Florida that uh, unfortunately is a uh, somewhat influential, somewhat influential, and he made a uh, short shiur, short shiur that for the people who don't know Torah, seems like it's not a big deal. In fact, it seems somewhat innovative, modern. What did he say in this short shiur of five minutes? He said, Am Yisrael does not believe in miracles. Am Yisrael does not believe in miracles. That's what he said. Amisla does not believe in miracles. Why? Because the word Nes, the word Nes, also means flag, banner. And he says, "You see, in our Tefillah, you know, when we learn in our Tefillah, we say we use the same word, uh, same word Nes as a banner, as a symbol, and so on and so forth." Amisla doesn't believe in miracles. He says. This, this is a video, so the immediate question is, what do you mean? What about this parasha, Parasha B'shalach? What about the parasha before it? Parasha before it, all, all the miracles of Yitzchak Mitzrayim, we had plagues, we had, you know, we got a the slave became the master, the master became the slave for the first and last time in history. That's a miracle. After that we left, went in the desert, Hashem split the ocean. You see see anyone splitting the ocean last, where, where, last week you saw it? Where did you see it? The ocean doesn't split by itself. How do you explain that? He explains it in the five minutes. The whole five minutes he was able to explain all of this. How do you explain it? He goes, Oh it's Yahmit time." listen, all the makot was different natural events that just happened. Happened to happen at that time. There was a swarm of frogs that just happened to come to Egypt. There was a swarm of animals that happened to come to Egypt. and it was hail with lava in it was it sort of came to Egypt. Well, okay well, fine. let's say you could explain all of these animals and strange things happening. Fine, no problem. what about the ocean? ocean split, huge giant Josh ocean. It split to two. It was no why you guys didn't see Discovery Channel. In Discovery Channel, there was a program they said it was a big tsunami. Tsunami was a wind at the perfect time that just so happened to be at the time that several million Bnei Say were there. And it split the ocean. And it happened to collapse at the same time that the Egyptians came in. This is an Orthodox rabbi, by the way. If it was reform, I wouldn't tell you the story. It's not a funny story. If it was conservative, I would tell you, you might as well be a Christian. I'm telling you, this is an Orthodox rabbi, he's actually a head of a school. He's a head of a school. Orthodox cool. He says, no, you guys didn't see Discovery Channel? Jews don't believe in miracles. Jews don't believe in miracles. Why? Because Nes means banner. He's right. Nes means banner, but it also means Nes. It also means miracle. It also means miracle. This Rabotai is a Torah without Yirat Shemayin. And the reason why is because When you have Yirat Shemayim, that's your explanation for everything. When you have Yirat Shemayim, that means you know what's in Shemayim. Shemayim is Hashem. He doesn't need an explanation. He doesn't need a natural way to do the unnatural. He is natural and He is unnatural. I don't need to explain how He performed the miracles. He's God. I don't need to explain how He created the world. He's God. I don't need to explain anything, He's God. I don't need to explain how I'm going to pay the bills this week, I have no money. I don't need to explain that. He's God, it's his problem, not my problem. I don't need to explain how you're going to have dinner on Shabbat for 25 people. And you don't even know how to cook, you don't know how to clean, you don't have chairs, you don't have nothing you don't have. But you want to have Shabbat, 25 people. I don't need to explain why, he's God, it's his problem, it's not your problem. I don't need to explain, it's his problem. I don't need to explain why some guy that was a Mechalev Shabbat a few years ago, all of a sudden he's mekarev and thousands and thousands of people are doing Shuvah weekly. How? Last a few years ago you are Shabbat. Now you're getting people to keep Shabbat. How could it be? I don't need to explain that. Why? He's God. He runs the show. That's Torah with Yirat Shemaim, Rabotai. Torah with Yirat Shemaim doesn't need explanations. There are tastes, there are little ta'amim, little different things that you can pick on. Oh, this is nice. It's... Helps me understand it in my human mind. Oh, this is nice. I can add this and I can add this. I can add the commentary here and the commentary. It's all nice. Tachles, bottom line, doesn't need explanation. Why? It's God. Torah without Yerat Shemaim. Torah without Yerat Shemaim needs an explanation for everything. Why? Because we humanize God. Torah without Yerat Shemaim means you don't care what's in Shemaim. You care about what you can see. If you can't see it, it doesn't exist. That's Torah without So a person of flesh and blood is going to say, listen, an ocean cannot split. A cup, you take a cup, I have a little bit of water left. Whoever wants to be kind and give me more water, it's good. But anyway, I have a water here. If I want, I'm going to concentrate on this water for an hour. Not right now. I'm just giving you a story, guys. I'm just I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Thank you. So I have a, I have a cup. I have a little water. It's good. It's <laughs> So you have a cup, you have water. Concentrate in this cup. Do, 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 do. I concentrate. An hour and a half concentrate in the cup. Nothing splits. Nothing happens. The water looks at me and he's like, What do you want? What do you want from us? We're here. We're not, we're not splitting. We're not splitting for you. We're not splitting. So a person without Yirat Shemaim is gonna have a problem with that. Was why isn't the water if the water can't split in the cup, how do you explain a whole ocean splitting? You need an explanation. Since Discovery Channel or some secular scientist explained, he's like, oh, this makes sense. I'm going to pick this. You're not going to pick what Chazal said, what Hashem said. You're not going to pick any of those things. You're going to pick something that you can get your head around. That's Torah without Yirat Shaman That's a poisonous Torah. So now I'll tell you when 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 Saddam um, Hussein attacked Israel, he sent thank you he sent 39 39 Scud missiles. 39 Scud missiles from his base Israel. Not too long ago. You were all alive at that time. Except maybe you. I knew, actually. Yeah, I you guys are really young. Well, um, so, he sent the missiles. Now, you know how big one of those missiles was? The missile was bigger than this room. The Scud missile was bigger than this room. Huge, giant. It was so big, it didn't fit on the semi-trailer. It didn't fit on the trucks. It was longer than the truck. They had to have it stand up. Because it was too long. It was bigger than a truck. Each one was literally the the size of a house. Huge. Full of explosives. Full of bad things. 39 of those things hit Israel. 39 of them went to Israel. 39. Now, even if you have a rock, a tiny little rock, a little pebble rock, you throw it from the top of the Empire State Building. Most likely you're going to hit something. Some say you gotta kill them right away, even if it's a penny. Some say it's not irrelevant. The point is, you throw a rock from a building. Mo- if you hit something, most likely you're gonna hit, you are know you hit something. There's a lot of people walking downstairs over there. If you're gonna put something the size of a house into a very populated area, it doesn't need to have explosives. Even without the explosives, it's gonna destroy stuff. Even without the explosive, somebody's gonna die. Someone, no one died. Not a single Jew died. Not a single one died. There was a attack. The Americans attacked one tiny little missile. Went against the Americans. Same time. Same war. One little thing against the Americans. Almost a hundred of them died. Do you understand? Now, you can explain this in a natural, absent-minded way, and say, no, it just happened to be that all 39 fell in the right place at the right time, and no one was home, and no one this, and no one... You can explain it in a normal way, that, oh, it just happened that they missed. You can explain it. But anyone that knows that the Hashem runs the world realizes it's the most absurd explanation in the world. Why? If a tiny little missile kills a hundred Americans, 39 that are giants, the size of buildings, at the very least, Shema what they could have done. So Torah without Yirat Shemaim is a Torah that requires a natural way to explain things. And unfortunately, that natural way eventually gets to a point where a person humanizes God so much he forgets he's God. God turns into his friend. God turns into his buddy. God turns into a and into his slave. Atheist, atheist doesn't believe that uh, that the the sea of Reeds split at all. He doesn't believe anything that happened in the, in the Torah. But if you're talking about people that are, do believe that the uh, Torah, or they call it the Bible, is real, and because there is archaeological proofs of it, uh, that it did happen, they found even uh, the uh, Egyptians on the bottom of the ocean, the different uh, ha- thousands and thousands of uh, the horse carriages and weapons of the Egyptians were found on the bottom of the ocean. So it's, there is archaeological proof uh, that was found to the splitting of the ocean, to Yetziat Mitzrayim. Uh, it's not a uh, it's not a theory, but uh, the way that the uh, people that believe in Torah, but yet don't have Yerat mind, don't have real Yerat mind, they explain it in a natural way. They just say, yeah, it just so happened to be that the Jews were there at that time, it just so happened to be that the Egyptians were there at the wrong time, and so on and so forth. They try to rationalize God. They try to rationalize things. It just so happened that somebody deposited money into your account right when you needed it. Really? What? For, for five years straight they're doing it? Every week? Like that's that's the thing. It's Torah without Yirat Shemaim is a poisonous Torah. It's a poisonous Torah, Rabotai. Now, the Mishnah here in Avot goes into a little bit further, deeper detail. Deeper detail than what we were talking about, which we'll get into. Hold on, the uh, internet is down. For whatever reason, It's Down a, a roll. Due to poor connection. Okay, so let's, hold on a second, let's try this again. This people live, they really like the shulim, let's try to... Sorry, guys. I was having a blast. Uh, one second. It's not working. Okay. Let's do okay, this last time. If it doesn't work, then... Chance that this works. No, nope. it didn't work. Let's just do this. Okay. Tell uh Vimesh to tell people from the previous thread to try again. It's supposed to start. Yeah. No, 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 it's not the Wi-Fi. Okay, but if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, then people just need to come to the shuling. What can we do? Okay, it's working, so just tell them to... Uh, to do. No, you can just text them. You don't need to call them. Just text them. Okay, so um, last, uh, last time we were here together, the last Mishnah that we learned, uh, we learned that there was ten generations from Noach Tavram Avinu. To show, and the, the, the reason why Hashem is telling us this through Chazal, obviously, is to show us his degree of patience, why there was, even though Hashem destroyed the world of the generation of Noach, because of all the sins that they made, The new generation that started with Shem and uh, you know Ham and Yefit, Noah's children, continued to sin. They continued to sin for ten more generations, and yet Hashem did not destroy the world because He was waiting for Avram Avinu to eventually come. So, the Mishnah says in five three in uh, Hey Gimel that there was ten generations from Noah to Avram to show the degree of patience that Hashem Idbar has, because despite the fact that they've angered Hashem, Hashem did not destroy the world. And Avram ended up getting the reward for all of them. And there's a few different places in the Gemara that compares Avram and Noah, which we'll talk about later. But now that we've talked about Avram, the very next Mishnah, the one that we're up to, the fourth Mishnah in uh, the fifth chapter, says the following. Our forefather Avram was tested with ten trials. And he withstood all of them. Ten big tests, and he withstood all of them, meaning he passed all of them, to show the degree of Avram's loved for Hashem. So Avram lived 175 years, and the Mishnah here says, "Okay, he had ten tests. Technically, if you do the math, ten tests over 175 years. Let's say he had." and even separation between each one of them. It's not such a big deal. Each one of us probably has ten tests a week, or a day. So what's such a big deal? So first and foremost, you know, there's no ten tests. It's a lot of tests. There's everyday tests. But there's ten specific, huge, monstrous tests that Avraham Avinu had. The Chachamim debate which ones they are. Was this one of the tests? Was this one of the tests? Why? Because each one of them is a test that none of us can pass. Even the ones that are not included in the ten. Forget about the ones in the ten. So, and ultimately the explanation here is that he had these ten tests, he passed these ten tests, and that's what made him Avraham Avinu. That's what made him so great, because by passing these ten tests, He not only became Avraham Avinu, he became Avraham Avinu because he showed his love for Hashem. So, Avot de Rabinatan has a list of what are these ten tests. What are these ten tests, Bemit? There's a few other Chachamim that debate a couple of the tests. Nonetheless, everyone agrees every one of these things is a huge test. There's debate about which ones are they talking about in these specific ten. There's a couple of them that are debatable. So, twice, twice, Avram Avinu was commanded by Hashem to move. Twice, Hashem commanded Avram Avinu to move. Parashat Lech Lecha, he tells Avram Avinu, leave your father's home. Leave what you're used to. Leave what you've built. Leave the keilah. Leave the followers you have. It wasn't like Avram was some uh, nobody at that time. He left when he was on top. Converted a bunch of people. That's why it says, Parashat Lech Lecha, that him and Sarah took with them all the souls they made. What do you mean the souls they made? All the people that converted. First Kiruv Rabbi in history. Many, many souls came with them. And that's where the Mephoshim say that from there we learn that when a person helps another come back to Hashem, meaning when when one person helps another do tshuva, in the eyes of Hashem, it's like they created them. Rabbi Natan says that when you help another person do tshuva, Hashem says, Oh, you created him. Why you created him? Why? Because before he did tshuva, he was considered a rasha. When someone is not doing the will of Hashem, they could be a very nice person according to people's definition. They could donate money, they can give people rides. They can say thank you when you give them something. They could open the door for every lady. They could uh, give raises to every one of their employees on a yearly basis. They could have a special charity to help uh, lost dogs find their homes. I don't know. All types of nice things. But in the eyes of Hashem, if a Jew does not keep Torah and mitzvot, if a non Jew does not keep the seven Noahide laws, Because Hashem said so, he's considered a Rasha. And a Rasha, a wicked person, the Torah says, the Tanakh says, the Rashaim, even during their life, they're considered dead. Even during their life, they're considered dead. Why are they considered dead? Because they're disconnected from Hashem. When someone is not doing the will of Hashem, that means he's disconnected. So... The tzaddikim, people that are righteous, even after they die, from the, after they leave this world, they're still considered alive. Why? Because their mitzvot live on permanently. The outcome of their mitzvot, you he help one guy come to a shul, the one guy, you know what? Now he's praying every day at the shul. Next thing you know, he starts to learn Torah. Next thing you know, he starts doing different mitzvot. You bring him to the shul, the guy does tshuva, he's going to do mitzvot every day for the rest of his life. His wife's going to do mitzvot. His kids are going to do mitzvot. Why? Because you brought him to one shiur, he did tshuva. Now he's righteous. Now once the person that helped him do tshuva passes away, goes to the next world, goes to olam ha'emet, he says in the eyes of Hashem he's still alive. Why? The outcome of his actions continue. The reward continues to increase. And so on and so forth. So the reshaim are considered dead during their life, and the righteous are considered alive even after their death. So the de Rabbi Natan says that when you help a Jew do tshuva and come back to Hashem, it's like you created him. Why you created him? You brought him back to life. He was considered dead as a He was considered dead. As soon as he ends this world, Hashem A'achem, Gemara Masechet, Roshana Hashanah, page 17 8, says, Someone who dies in Mechalel Shabbat, there's no tshuva in Shemaim. finished. Torture him and punish him until the soul is destroyed. It's not a pretty picture, Abutai. So when you get this guy to become a Shomer Shabbat, you just gave him life. You just give me now he's alive. Now he's alive. Hashem says, You're my partner. You're my partner. You created him. So when Avram and Sarah Get all of these different people to do tshuva, become monotheistic, believe in one God instead of the idols. The Torah says, these were the souls they created. It's a in the Torah. They brought with them the souls they created. But this was still a test. Why? Imagine you work, you build a keila, uh, you worked there for many, many years. In the beginning, it's very difficult. One guy shows up to the shoe and it's your brother. The next week, another person shows up, but it's your wife. The third week, somebody shows up again, but it's your daughter. She's three years old. Years like this, no one shows up to your shulim, no one nothing, no one donates, no one comes, no one nothing, but you keep going, you keep going. Eventually, another guy shows up. Eventually, another guy shows up. Eventually, another one, another one, another one. 25 years, 30 years, you're building. Baruch finally you have thousands of people showing up to everyone in your shulim. Thousands. Hashem yeah. says, okay, leave. What do you mean? I've worked on this for 30 years. Now you want me to leave. You should have made me leave 30 years ago, before the kapat, I've given a shield to my two year old daughter. Before that, you should have told me to leave. Now you want me to leave after I built the whole kila? Avram didn't ask questions. Hashem says, Lech Lecha. Avram picked up and left. No questions. This happened twice. What was the second time? When he told Avram Avinu, Avram, leave, leave your father's home. Go to this place, I'm going to give you a big reward. I'm going to give you ultimate prize. I'm going to give you amazing things. I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you that. He gives him best bless, best blessing ever. He shows up. What's the first day? They announce on the news. Rabotai, we're sorry. There's no more food. When are we going to get the next shipment? Never. Everyone's leaving. Everyone's moving out. This is the last report. Thank you. No food. No water. No nothing. You showed But you just, Hashem, you just promised me if I come. You're gonna give me this and this, and don't even give me all that. Just give me food. Avram does not ask questions. No food, okay? Pikoch nefesh, Pikoch nefesh. I have to leave. I have to leave this mitzvah. I have to save the life. He goes to Egypt. Test number two. Avot rabbi natan says the following is, after this famine, and after he has to leave his ancestral home. Another two tests are with with two of his sons. His two sons. He had two sons, and he had a huge test with both of them. The first one is when Sarah Imenu tells Avram, "Listen, I know I'm the one that told you to have a son, be with Hagar, because I couldn't bring any children." But uh, I'm sorry to tell you, this Ishmael the Rasha kick him and his mother out of here. Okay, listen, I understand. Maybe you don't like her, maybe you don't like him, maybe they're Sephardi, you're Ashkenazi, you're Sephardi, are Ashkenazi, Sephardi. Maybe the family, maybe. fine, you don't like her. I have to kick them out on the streets. Let me build them a different house down the street. Let me uh, start. I don't know. New my mom had a uh, blessing. It says that Hashem, as a verse in the Torah says, Hashem blessed Avraham with everything. He had everything. So there's no shortage of money or anything. Sarai, Imenu who says, out. Ishmael and his mother, out of here. Throw him out. Avram has a very hard time with this mitzvah. He wants Shlom bayit. He wants to listen to his wife, but it's very hard. It's a son. Ke'bikfuy tova. He goes to Hashem. Hashem says, listen to Sarah. Hashem signs off, listen to everything Sarah says. Imagine, you waited your whole life to have a kid. Finally you have a kid, and now, you have to throw him out. Tough mitzvah. He doesn't ask any questions. Hashem says, Hashem says. When the wife said, I ask questions. Hashem said, Hashem said. No questions when Hashem said he did say, no, but shit. Shem no. says, don't worry. He knows what's in his heart. Don't worry, he'll be blessed with a big nation too. Unfortunately, they're a big nation today. About two billion of them that want to kill us. But nonetheless, point is, is that, Rabotai, Avram does not ask questions. Then he has another test. His dear son, He waited for him a hundred years. Comes from Sarah, Tzaddik, Kadosh. Everything is great. He likes Torah. He loves Hashem. He's righteous. Hashem says, from him, all of your descendants and your blessings are going to come. Meaning Hashem signed off. Yes, that's the one. Remember I told you all the promises, good things are going to come. That's him. From him. From him. Why? Because you fulfilled my will. You told all of the nations don't sacrifice your children. You told all of the nations don't worship idols. You told all the nations to worship. A sh- you told them. You stood. Good job. This is the son I've been talking about this whole time. That's him. Moments later. Oh, by the way, that son I told you everything. Bring him to the mountain as a sacrifice. The one son you have. The son is supposed to get all the blessings from. Bring him as a sacrifice. He then has the test with his wife Sarah being kidnapped both by Paro and Avimelech twice. The one main thing that we know about Sarah Imenu. As we learn, when the malachim, the angels came to Avram's tent, they said, Where is Sarah, your wife? But they're angels. Why are they asking, Where is Sarah? Because that was the number one thing that a woman needs to know. Anytime a woman is complimented in the Torah, she's complimented for one thing it's not her intellect, it's not how good she cooks. It's not how nice her nicer shoes are. It's how modest she is. Modest in clothing, modest in behavior. The Malachim wanted to remind Abraham Avinu, where's your wife? Look how modest she is. She's not hanging out with the guys. We're here. Malachim, where's your wife? She could have easily hung out with them. She's a prophet. She knows what's going on. She's in our section. Why? It's not our job to go talk with guys. That's for our husband. She talks to the women, he talks to the men. A lot of times you have people, they tell me, listen, can you do me a favor? Can you call my wife for me and uh, ask her about... Da-da-da-da-da? I said, wait, you want me to call your wife? Or can I just have my wife call you? And da-da-da-da? I'm like, why do you want me to talk to your wife? Why can't you talk to me? No, but uh, I'm busy with this and this. I'm like, yeah, but you realize I'm a guy. Like, why do you want another guy talking to your wife? They don't see anything wrong with that. They don't see anything wrong with that, Abutai. And I know that some people are listening to this, and they also don't see anything wrong with it. This is why 80% of people in the Western world get divorced. Because a lot of wives have Boyfriends. And a lot of husbands have girlfriends. And eventually, initially, they're just friends. And unfortunately, sometimes it develops into something much worse. There's no such thing as platonic relationships. No such thing. The platonic nature of the relationship is only temporary. So the Malachim wanted to remind Avraham Avinu. Look how modest your wife is. Even in our own house, she doesn't feel comfortable enough to talk to strangers. She doesn't t- feel comfortable enough to talk to men. Why? It's not her role to talk to men. It's women, she'll talk to the women. Why? Sarah, who knows what the Yitzsa is capable of doing? Why should I put myself in front of a test? Why? The says if a righteous person has two directs, two ways to go. I've said this many times and I'm sure you guys have heard this before, but it's always good to remind. You have two ways to get from point A to point B. One way, five minutes. Second way, five hours. The five minutes, they tell him, listen, uh, it's five minutes, but there's a nashim prutzot, there's imarasti over there. There's a club, there's a pub, there's a this, there's a that, there's a Shem over there, but five minutes, you get to where you want to be, you get to the synagogue. The other way is five hours, because you have to go around the whole city, and the whole building, and the whole this, a lot of wasted time. But there's nobody there, not even the animals go there, nothing. It's empty. The Gemara says, if the person decides to go on the five-minute route, and closes his eyes, closes his eyes so he doesn't see any immodesty, does not see any modesty. don't think he's looking at the girls. He went and he closed his eyes. He says, I'm going to go five minutes. Why am I going to waste five hours? I'm going to waste five hours? No, come on. I can't learn Torah. I'm going to go the five minutes. I'm going to just close my eyes. I'm going to look at the floor. Kamara says, Rasha. Wicked. Why? Why wicked? Why are you putting yourself in front of the test? Who says you're going to pass? Why are you so confident you're going to pass this test? Why are you so confident you're going to pass the test? Why are you so confident you're going to work and, uh, and have five assistants? They're all women. Why? Why? Why can't you get a, a guy? Oh, yeah, I don't get along. It doesn't make a difference. Can you do the job? Oh, yeah, but the customer is like, oh, customer is like. So, you have a uh, business or you have a, uh, what customers uh, are looking at? What do you have? These small little decisions are how they determine whether a person is righteous or wicked in Shamayim. This is Omek Adin. This is the depth of judgment. So when the Malachim was telling Avram Avinu, Avram, where is your wife? They're not just reminding Avram. They're reminding us, Rabotai, Where's your wife? Is your wife out with her girlfriends every night, having coffee at 10 o'clock at night? Or is your wife at home? Being a Jew, being a holy person, taking care of the kids, taking care of you, encouraging you to go learn shiur Torah, or you can't go because she has to go out with the girlfriend. At one time a guy used to come to the shiur, but every once in a, once a month, he would miss. He'd miss the shiur. And He was really doing good, he was doing good, doing good, but he missed the shoe. Now if you don't go, if, if I'm the only Torah that you're learning the whole week, missing a shoe is a big deal. If you're learning every day and you Shivao, you're learning from books and so on and so forth, and you miss the shoe. It's not good, but it's not the end of the world. But if I'm the only Torah you're going to learn the whole week, you miss it. you have a serious, serious problem. Now you don't have in two weeks. Hashem says, you leave me for, for, uh, for one day, I'll leave you for two days. You leave me for two weeks, Hashem Achem. The guy can become an atheist in two weeks. No joke. Momosh, the guy can become an atheist in two weeks. So I see the guy on a regular basis, he's missing a shoe. What happened? Why are you missing a shoe? Regular, once, okay, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not your babysitter. Twice, okay, it happens. But now it's every month. I see this. One time I asked them. I asked like, "Listen, why do you miss the shoe at least once a month? Is this some what's going on? What's why what you go to a different shoe? He goes, "Oh no, no, once a month, my uh, my my wife has a girls' night out. She goes out with her girlfriends." I said, "At ten o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night?" He goes, yeah, yeah? They go out, you know, they go and they have and, they need, and you know they have a good time. And in. That in his mentality, there's nothing wrong with this. In fact, it's a mitzvah. I'm having my my wife is having a good time. Shem and what kind of judgment comes from Shemaim for such stupidity? Number one, why is your wife out at ten o'clock at night? Why? Why is your wife out at ten o'clock at night? Why are you out as a guy if at ten o'clock at night, other than Shiltoh, where are you going? We going to bars? to go see Pritzut, go find a new girlfriend. What are you doing at 10 o'clock at night? Only problems are open at 10 o'clock at night if it's not cold. What do you have? What are you doing? No, no, I'm just going to have a couple of drinks with the guys. Get beer, drink in your house. If you need alcohol so much. No, you know, it's the guys, It's the, oh yeah, it's the girls, That's not your wife. Oh, so you're guaranteed to go for a sin. No, no. At least you know. Don't pretend. Some guys do with a on. No, no, no. I I went to the shoe and then I went to have a couple of drinks. So it's after the shoe. Better off you didn't go to shoe. Why? Because they're going to judge judge you even worse now. Chutzpah. That's Torah without yirat shemaim. You went to the shoe, you learned nothing. You went to a bar with a bunch of putzot. No, only a couple of drinks for the Only a couple of drinks. You want drinks? Drink at home. No, my wife. My wife is is with her friends. She's with her friends at 10 o'clock at night. She's having dinner. She's having dinner with her friends at 10 o'clock at night. Why, she can't have dinner at home? Can't have dinner at a normal hour at 5 o'clock? Why 10 o'clock at night? So that's number one. Already, anyone that has, doesn't matter if you're religious or not, already knows this is not a normal behavior. The second thing is, this is when all the problems happen. And the third and worst part that most people don't even consider as a bad thing yet is the fact that this girl's night out just caused her husband to be a mevatel Torah, bitul Torah. He just missed his study session. He missed his study session because of the girl's night out. How bad is it? How bad is it to to not study Torah. I'm going to give you one story from the Torah. Yeshua Benun was G'dol Ado after Moshe Rabbeinu. Why did he become a giant? Because he was the humblest of all people after Moshe. After Moshe. Moshe had two kids. You want to Hashem, listen Hashem, make my kids uh, the leaders. Fits, they're good kids. Tzadikim, they know Torah. Hashem says, no, Yeshua Benun. Yeshua Benun was a gabai, he was cleaning the Beknesset. He didn't have chokmah, he was actually, they called him ksil. Ksil is like a fool. They called Yeshua Benun a fool. He wasn't a giant in Torah. Hashem says, what's missing? Knowledge? I'll give him knowledge. Tut. Becomes Dolodh, he knows everything. What's a big deal? It's Hashem. Again, you have to understand this sounds like well, what he studied all night for six months straight, without sleeping, for fourteen years, like Yaakov Avinu. He, he didn't sleep. No, no, no. One second, Hashem gave him the whole Torah. He went from fool to giant in a second. Why? He had midat anava. He was humble. Once you're humble, everything's yours. Why to make him to make him delete, I need to give him chokhma. No problem. So this is a giant. Tzadik, Kadosh. They get to Jericho. You see this in the Tanakh. Book of Joshua. It says that a Malach comes to Joshua. And Joshua sees a sword in his hand. Are you with us? He asks him, are you with us or against us? Malach says, I'm not with you. If you're not with me, you're against me. Why? What do we do? Because you made a big sin. You made a huge sin. We're in the middle of a war. You're worrying about sins right now. We're in the middle of a war. They're trying to kill us. This, that, scud missiles. There's uh, tanks everywhere. What do you want? the middle of a war you're worrying about sins what sins we made even we even have time to make sins then Yeshua ben avinu pashanu, he starts thinking about what sins oh that's the sin maybe we forgot to bring the korban tamid we forgot to bring the korban the sacrifice to Hashem that's why you're here to, 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 to tell us to do the korban I'll do Koban right now no problem he goes no that's not the reason I'm here the malach comes with a sword meaning he's coming here to kill I'm not here for the korban tamid. What sin did we do? He says you are Mavatil Torah. You guys didn't study Torah. What do you mean? We're in a war. He goes, right now you're a war? No, right now there's a break for a few hours. Okay, why aren't you studying Torah? Last night you were you were you were in a war? No, we were sleeping. Why don't you study Torah? But we were sleeping. Why don't you study Torah? But we were sleeping. It doesn't make why don't you study Torah? Hashem sent a malach from Shemaim to Mamash. We were moments away from being punished. Why? We didn't study Torah. That's bitul Torah, Rabotai. You're supposed to study Torah an extra five minutes. When I throw a five-hour session, you missed the whole shiur for three hours. Five minutes you didn't study, there's a deed in Shemaim against you. So the woman went the girl's night out. And the husband didn't go to his shiur. And you think it's okay. That's because we don't know what Yishtacharaim is. We don't know even know why we're here. The next test, after having this huge two tests, both seeing his modest wife be kidnapped by two tmeim, two impure people, both Paro and Avimelech. Avram finds out that his relative Lot is kidnapped, and he has to go fight a war. Him against four kings, against four different armies. Him against all these armies. You tell a guy, listen, they kidnap your cousin. Okay, I'll beat him up. No, no, no. It's not him. It's uh, it's four armies. It's a uh, Afghanistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. Against you. Avraham doesn't ask questions. He goes to fight the war, and he wins. No questions asked, Rabotai. No questions asked. That's Avram Avinu. We'll get to the reason why. But that's the next test. After this... Hashem tells them, Chazakubo, for all the things that you're doing, we're going to have a covenant between me and you, but just so you know, your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years. What do you mean? I did good, you said. Why are you making my children slaves for 400 years? If I did good, usually I get a reward. Like people think, oh no, I kept Shabbat. Shouldn't Hashem make me a millionaire now? How many Shabbats should you keep? This is the first one. Oh, I've been keeping Shabbat for three months. How come I didn't find a wife yet? I've been keeping Shabbat for uh, six months. How come I didn't win the lotto? How come my uh, Bitcoin went down to nothing? How come uh, this? How come... People think they do three, four, five, six mitzvot already. Moshe Rabbeinu's reward is already katana. Aleim. It's already too little. He wants something more. You kept Shabbat a few times. You kept kosher a few times. You stopped eating pig. You want Hashem to give you a blank check. Avram Avinu did everything good. Hashem says, by the way, your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years. No questions asked. No why, no how, no who, no can I stop, nothing. 400 years, 400 years. Before all of this happened, Rashi says the biggest test was how he started his life. The necromancers, the different magician type people that used black magic that worked for Nimrod Rasha, told him, by the way, that somebody's going to be born and he's going to destroy you. So Nimrod decided every single baby born. Kill him. Terach, Avraham's father, had both Avram and another baby on the same day with one of his other wives. Now everyone knew he had a baby. So he brought the other baby. He brought the other baby to Nimrod. But Avram, he hid him. He hid him in a cave for 13 years. 13 years, all he saw was darkness. I mean, at the, at the best case scenario, if all you saw is darkness for 13 years, all you saw is walls, maybe a few bats once in a while. All you saw is nothing. Some say it's three years. Rashi says 13 years. Either way, you started off your life, all you saw is darkness. There's no friends. There's no video games. There's no iPhone. There's no WhatsApp. There's no Facebook. There's no shoe on every Tuesday at Brestle Center. There's nothing. All you saw is nothing. Best case scenario, you're retarded. Best case scenario. Best case scenario, you have a mental deficiency. Best case scenario, if you saw nothing. Best case scenario, you think you're a bat, or a cat, or or some bug. You think you're one of them. Best case scenario. Worst case, who knows? Abraham, no questions asked, he discovers God through the darkness. That's how he starts his life. But after this, when he comes out, he screams Hashem's name. He's not hiding it. They catch him, they bring him to Nimrod, Nimrod said, okay, no, bow to me, I'm God. Avram says, last week you had a backache. This week, you have a stomachache. Next week, you're probably going to have diarrhea too. You're coughing a little bit. You get sick. You're nothing. You're a human being. You're not God. You're nothing. Who are you? You're not God. Just bow to me. I'm God. I'm going to kill you. Nothing. I'm going to throw you in the fire. The fire, even the people that throw the people into the fire are scared of the fire. It's so hot. Pharaoh says, what? You want me to bow to you or in the fire? Avram goes and jumps into the fire. He goes and jumps into the fire. No like, oh, maybe, oh, Let's negotiate. Maybe we could, I could pretend, to pretend. I don't really believe you're God and we both, between you and me, we both know you're not God, we both know you're not God, but I'll pretend, you know, I'll drop a quarter on the floor and I'll go pick it up and everyone's going to think I'm bowing to you, but in reality, between you and me, I'm not bowing anything, you're nothing, negotiate, haggle, be a politician a little bit. Abraham says, that's the fire. He jumps in. The people that were trying to throw him in, they got burned. They were trying to throw him into the fire, they got burned, they died. The Malachim, Malach Gabriel says, Hashem, this righteous man's about to die, he's jumping into the fire. Obviously there's no concept of time up there, so all of this is whole conversation is timeless. Because just to say the words of the story takes five ten minutes. Malak comes to Hashem and says, Hashem, the only one that believes in you is about to die. He's jumping into a fire right now. Let me go save him. My fire is stronger than the fire of earth. My fire can block it. Can blot the other fire. Hashem says, he's alone up there, and I'm alone up here. My fire eats that fire. I'm going to go save him. Some say thrown, some say he was jumped. Either way, he's in the fire. He's in the fire, and Hashem himself comes and saves Avraham Avinu. At a hundred years old almost, Hashem tells Avraham, by the way, you're going to have to have a very, very dangerous surgery. Not only you have to circumcise yourself, you have to circumcise your entire household. A lot of people think it's just circumcision of himself and maybe his son. No, 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 everyone. Now, if somebody wants to circumcise themselves, you say, oh, this guy's uh, crazy. You want to be crazy, crazy on your own body. What do I care? You men, right? Well, you can't circumcise women, so unless there's a new chidush, you can't circumcise up to now women. So, the people say he wants to circumcise himself. Circumcise himself. What, is, what do they care? Some people even want to watch just to see how much pain he's in. Some people will get pleasure out of seeing other people in pain. Sick people. Such people exist. It's like somebody says, I'm going to get a tattoo on my face. Okay, get a tattoo on your face. Want to ruin your face for the rest of your life? Go, enjoy. I'm going to get a tattoo of uh, my dog on my arm. Okay, you want to get a dog that's going to die in a couple years from now on your arm? You're going to live with this dog on your arm for the next 60 years. Good luck. I'm going to get a uh, quote. I'm going to get a quote uh, written on my arm. You realize that the quote's going to become blurry in a couple of years, and then you can't read it, right? Some people are so stupid that they actually have verses from the Torah written on them. You realize that the same Torah that you're writing on, says "Don't don't make tattoos, right? One guy was such a heretic, before he did tshuva, he actually wrote the verse, of not to get a tattoo on himself. But Hashem, he did tshuva eventually. I know him. Such is life, such is Yetzirah. Rabotai, such is Yetzirah. So, I actually had a guy I knew. Hopefully he did tshuva by now. I don't know him anymore. But when I knew him, he wasn't exactly the most righteous person on earth. And he got a tattoo of what? God's name. He got God's name written on him. Why? Technically you can't erase it. <laughs> but now you want to do chuva. You want to do chuva. You don't by the way, the sin of tattoos is getting the tattoo. Once you have a tattoo, you're not necessarily obligated by default to remove it. Only if the tattoo causes Chilu Hashem are you obligated to remove it. Meaning if it's in a place that everyone sees, like on your neck, or on your face, or on your forehead, or on your eyes, or something like that, or on your hands, then you may have to remove it, depending on what it is. So, if it's, let's say, if it's a tattoo of an immodest woman, or it's a tattoo of JCPenney, or a cross, or something like that that desecrates Hashem's name, then you have to remove it, regardless. But if it's a tattoo, I don't know, of your dog or something or of a cartoon character, and you have it somewhere that no one else sees it, you're not obligated to remove it. You should if you can, but you're not obligated to remove it. You already made the sins. No longer a sin to have it. But the thing is though, is that with a tattoo of Hashem's name, technically you can't remove it because it's actually part of your skin. You can't erase Hashem's name. You cannot erase Hashem's name. So you have a serious problem. You're not only an idiot, you have, a, you have to live with the fact that you're an idiot. You can't fix it. Unfortunately, unfortunately he has to. Yeah. Unfortunately he has to. You should know, by the way, in the Gemara Barachot says that in the times of the, um, of the Gemara, people would go, they would remove their tefillin, they would remove their tefillin, but they would take the tefillin with them to the bathroom, because they were scared that someone was going to steal it. Because there wasn't like today—you have closets and big bedchambers uh, and the bathrooms in the back. It wasn't like the bathroom was two miles outside of the city. There was a hole in the wall, so you had to—you know—anyone could just take the tefillin. It's not like everybody's tzaddik that's using the bathroom, so. You're not allowed to wear the tefillin, but you're allowed to take them in if they're covered and so on and so forth. It's all process the Gemara goes into. Obviously, it's not ideal. Today, we don't do it anymore. But if you don't have a choice, that's what you do. If, let's say, for example, you're in an airport, and obviously you're smart enough to bring your tefillin, because that should be the first thing you pack when you travel is your tefillin. Because a Jew that does not late tefillin has no alamabah. Jew that does not late tefillin, meaning if you miss one, it's a sin, no good. But if you just decide you don't want to late tefillin, it's not for you. It's not for you. Not for you to late tefillin. Takes too much time. The five minutes it takes to late tefillin is too much time for you. Malach says no alamabah for that person. It's a big deal. Late tefillin. Now, if you travel. Obviously, you realize you're not, you know, you're going to have to go to the bathroom in a way and so on. So, at the airport, only a fool will leave his luggage outside of the bathroom. Number one, you're going to get arrested because you're going to think it's a bomb. Uh, and number two, somebody may steal it if it's not a bomb. So, you have to bring your luggage with you to the bathroom. It's no problem. You bring it to the bathroom. Obviously, you're not taking that feeling and putting it in the bathroom. The point is, it's in the luggage. It's no problem. It's not ideal, meaning if you're in your house, Don't bring the feeling into your bathroom. But the point is is that if you have no other option, if you're in an airport, you're traveling, so on and so forth, no problem. Why would they? Sell it. It's worth money. By the way, if a goy ever comes to you, if a goy ever comes to you, and uh, they actually say, I heard this from Rav Mizrahi, I believe. Rav Mizrahi. Uh, she, he, uh, sometimes goyim, they don't know what they're stealing. They just take whatever is there. They go to a locker room, Jewish locker room, just take whatever there, and then they discover, oh, there's a bunch of black things. So they try to go back to the same community or a different Jewish community, try to sell the stuff. So one time a guy came to a uh, Jewish guy, and he told him, hey, listen, I found this stuff. How much are you going to pay me for it? And the guy saw It's so a bag of tefillin with a name on it, and uh, the guy's trying, trying to sell it to him. Now, on one end, you can buy it. You can buy it, Feline, whatever. It's 100 bucks, 500 bucks, whatever he wants to sell it for. You can buy it and then return it to the guy. But the problem that you create there is that now the thief, now the thief that he sees that someone's willing to buy this stuff, now you're actually helping him or you're encouraging him to continue doing it, to continue stealing. Because he sees that this thing is worth something. He doesn't know what feeling are. So now you stole this bag. It has, uh, you know, these leather boxes in it and someone's willing to pay him 200 bucks for it he's going to start doing it every day so this guy was very smart he saw this guy bringing him this tefillin he knows the guy doesn't know what a tefillin is he says oh it's tefillin let me check them out now. I want to see if they're real if they're good if they're this It's like okay check it out no problem he doesn't know what he's doing he puts the tefillin on he looks for it he pretends like he's where's the other one obviously I have one on the left hand I need one for the right hand. Wait, oh, it's missing. That's ah, not worth anything. It's not worth anything. I need for two hands. You see, there's only one for the head, there's only one for the arm. It's supposed to be two. You're missing one. The whole thing is not good. It's not good. It's not worth anything. Okay, okay, okay. The guy said, okay, I'll give five bucks. You give me five bucks? Okay, fine. I'll give you five dollars for it. I'll give you five dollars for it. Obviously, it's feeling you only need one hand. But the guy doesn't know it. But here, he actually, every time the guy goi is going to see, the thief is going to see, Tefillim, he's going to see, oh, there's only two, he's going to write right, ah, it's not worth anything, it's always incomplete. So he's not going to steal anymore. That's a smart person, smart person does such a thing. Only Torah teaches you to be such a smart person. Because that's, that's smart on the spot, at the moment. It's not smart like you read a book and you could uh, take a test after. There's a mechloket on as far as if it's Hashem's name, why are you allowed to erase it? Are you not allowed to erase it? But in general, you shouldn't get it in the first place. You shouldn't get it. The big sin is getting the tattoo, not, uh, not uh, having the tattoo. Once you have the tattoo, unless it creates chilul Hashem, it's not necessarily as big of a problem as it was when you first got it. Now, the last test, as we said, that Avram Avinu got, is that now he's told you have to circumcise everyone. Now, if you want to circumcise yourself, good luck to you. Enjoy. Go cut yourself up and put a tattoo on your face while you're at it. And videotape, put on YouTube. What do I care? But now, he has to circumcise everyone. It's, not, it's a big deal. No questions asked. Obama Vino does not ask any questions. Now, just so you know, this type of behavior is within each and every single Jew. To an extent, obviously. There are many stories throughout history of different righteous Jews that were willing to die for Hashem. Not only the famous stories, Chania, Mishael, Azariah, that jumped into a fire when Nebuchadnezzar wanted to, to, to worship him, to bow to him, they jumped into the fire with no questions asked. Just like where they learned it from, Avraham Avinu. Many Jews throughout all of history, when the Goyim came to them and told them, worship our cross, worship our this, worship our that, no questions asked, they died on the spot. In the bio of, a, uh, of uh, Rashi, Shutuotan Yirena Lenu, when all of the different pogroms and inquisitions and, and, and suffering that the uh, that was Amisla was enduring in different parts of the world, many of them are discussed in his bio. And when uh, Peter the Hermit, the Shimo, and his people came in the name of their false god, their J.C. Penny, and uh, forced people to convert, they want people to convert. Very, very few very few Jews actually fell and converted. Most of them died. Most of them said, we'll die and not worship your false god. Men, women, children, very, very few, minute, minute percentage, minute a few, actually fell for it and, you know, which even at that point you can't blame them. The guy's putting a gun to your head. What are you going to do? You can't uh, say, hey, "Listen, wow, you don't believe in God. You, you weren't willing to die for him." You try. But here from the distance, in a, you know, in a freedom of religion country, it's very easy to judge other people. That somebody put a gun to their head and they said, "No, no, no, I'll worship whatever God you want." It's very easy to judge him. Oh, you don't have your chumaim. You don't believe Yerusha, you rasha. No, it's very easy because you're from a distance. You're sitting on a chair. So uh, sofa, you have your uh, pizza, you have your popcorn, you have your this. It's comfortable. Nobody's killing you. But the reality is, in the moment of truth, it's a very big test. And even the big test, very, very few fell. Very few. Most had the same character trait as Avram Avinu. They inherited inside their DNA to die for the name of Hashem. This is not once or twice, many, many times throughout the last several thousand years, Am Israel has been warned to die for the name of Hashem on a regular basis, even in cases of people that were not religious. Even people that were not religious. There's a story of a famous uh, bal Tshuva that Reb Mizrahi made, uh, do chuva. Before he did Tshuva, he was a very, very big gangster. One of the top gangsters, and one day Rami Mizrahi asks him, "What made you do tshuva? Like, what made you decide to change your life? I mean, your life of crime, his whole life. From what he, how he describes him, he looks like a gorilla, scary-looking guy. Everyone's scared of his shadow. Forget him. Like, what makes somebody like this, full of tattoos, full of crime, full of all different types of? What makes you do tshuva?" Like how does somebody like that get some merit? The Rambam says in Yichod at the end of days, a person's going to have to have merit to do Tshuva. What gave this guy merit to do Tshuva? And he says a story that one time we got arrested after they did a robbery. They got arrested, I believe, in Italy. They got arrested, and the Italian prison system is a little different. They're very religious. Apparently, they're very religious. So every day, they would make uh, their uh, prisoners pray to J.C. Penny. So this guy, who was a Jew, an Israeli, come out of the jail. Okay, pray to J.C. Penny. He's not religious. So I'm not praying to this cross. Bow! I'm not, I'm not bowing. They start beating him up. Beating him up. Blood everywhere. Putting him in holes. Nonstop. I'm not bowing to the cross. Not bound to the cross. But you're not religious though. You don't even believe. You don't keep Shabbat. You don't keep nothing. Not bound to the cross. That's why sometimes honestly I see and I say some of these balet shuvah it's unbelievable how righteous they are. Unbelievable. They just didn't know it the whole time. They just didn't know the truth and as soon as you tell them listen Hashem wants you to do this they do it. Some of these secular people are better than any religious person you can meet. They just don't know. They just don't know anything. You tell them, they do. This guy refused, refused to, despite the beatings, the tortures, the you know, he killed. No one's gonna care. Refused to bow to a uh, to a cross. This midah, this character trait, is something that he inherited from Avraham inherited from Avraham Now, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 8, Hashem says, Avram Wavi. Avram, my lover. He loved me, meaning I loved him. Meaning, it's written in our Torah. It's inscribed in our Torah forevermore. The love between Hashem and Avram, alvaya lenu. Hashem Himself wrote in the Torah, "I know Avram loved me, and I loved him." The question is why? The question is all of these tests, each one is bigger than the other. Whether it's the wives, or the moving, or the money, or the, uh, you know, all these different things, each one is worse than the other. How do you get to this point? How do you get to a point of actually having such love? A lot of people like to talk about loving Hashem. No, why are you talking about fear of Hashem? Talk about love. Talk about loving Hashem. We're not going to repeat what we've said many times before. That love without fear is impossible. We're going to give you some new insights, specifically connecting to Avraham Avinu and also to this parasha. So, many of you, I'm I'm assuming all of you, have heard about Akedat Yitzchak. When Avram was promised by Hashem, Yitzchak is going to be the son that all of your rewards are going to come through, all the greatness is going to come from him, and all the good stuff. And then, because this is all because you sanctified my name, you told others not to sacrifice their children, you told people to believe in me, and then later on he tells them, bring your son as a sacrifice. Avram does not ask any questions. Now, if you look at the Sfarim HaKetoshim in regards to the Akidat Yitzchak, you're going to see different types of opinions of some of the details that happened there. But nonetheless, everyone agrees this was something that was beyond normal, even for the Avot When Avram got to the mountain, it wasn't a mountain originally. It was actually a something you couldn't see. It was a um, a ditch. And it became a mountain after he passed the test. Hashem raised it. As if he's raising him as a reward. But what was the real test? He didn't kill him. If he killed him, And he still had a in Hashem. Okay, that's a test. But after all, he didn't kill him. He didn't sacrifice him. So when Avram got to the place to do the Akidah and he tied Yitzchak, the Gemara Masechet Shabbat says that there are different things you can do on Shabbat, different things you can't do on Shabbat. So one of the things you're not allowed to do is you're not allowed to hunt. You're not allowed to tie anything, not to tie certain knots and so on. He so, says, okay, but what about if you have camel? If you don't tie your camel, he's going to run away. If you don't tie your uh, donkey, he's going to run away. You can't park him in the parking lot and the guy is going to give you valet whenever you want. If the time somewhere. Stigma says, okay, so there are certain ways you're allowed to tie. You're allowed to tie the camel a certain way. There's a lot lot to tie the the donkey a certain way. But there's a couple of ways that you're not allowed to tie. One way that you're not allowed to tie is like the Akedah. Like Avraham Avinu tied Yitzchak. How did Avraham Avinu tie Yitzchak? He tied his hands and his legs to each other behind the back. You cannot tie the camel or the donkey or the horse. You cannot tie all four of their legs to each other and make them pretty much not able to move. You can't make them immobile. How do you tie them? You're allowed to tie one of their legs where they pretty much can walk on all three, but one of the leg they can That way they're not going to run away. They're going to stay around the same area, but they're still mobile. They're still mobile. They're not like a dog that you can just tie them by the neck because if, if they get uh, uh, upset or, or, or heated in any way, shape, or form, they can rip the tree out of the ground if they want. So you have to tie them in a certain way where they're to slow them down. So how are you allowed to tie them? Tie one the leg to, it, to itself, like you bend the leg. You bend the leg and you tie it. So that way that leg is, in essence, they can't use it. So now they can't run. But they can still walk. But the Gemara says you can't tie them like the How's the the Kedai is you tie them to a point where they were not able to move. You're tying the legs and the hands together, and from there we learn that Avraham Avinu tied Yitzchak with the hands and the legs tied to each other behind the back, and the neck sticking out. Who stuck the neck out? Yitzchak. Yitzchak said, "Make sure, make sure you cut over here, so I die right away." And this and the this is something we is beyond our understanding. They're excited about this mitzvah. No questions asked. If you look at some of the details, it's unbelievable. After Hashem sends an angel, an angel tells Avram, 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 don't touch him. Don't touch the young man. It wasn't Hashem himself talking, it was an angel of Hashem. Hashem sent a representative. Why? If Hashem spoke to him himself, it would have scared him. He didn't want to scare him. And the angel himself didn't come, he spoke first. Why? Because if Avram would have actually seen an angel, it would have scared him. They wanted to say it in a certain way that's not going to scare him too much, but they wanted to stop him. Why? Because they knew that he's about to kill his son despite the fact that he's crying the whole time, despite the fact that this is painful, despite the fact that it doesn't make sense, despite the fact that this contradicts everything that he ever learned. Hashem says, I'm giving you this whole reward because you didn't. Sa- you told everyone to stop sacrificing their kids. Now, you're going to sacrifice your kid. This contradicted everything. Avram didn't ask any questions. When the angel told Avram, don't do it, Avram says, but... I already came all the way here. Which means that Hashem wants me to do something. So let me at least cut a little bit. Let me cut him a little bit. To at least sprinkle the Mizbeach with some blood. So I didn't come here for nothing. Because Hashem obviously he sent me to do something. He didn't send me for nothing. Hashem doesn't do something for nothing. He doesn't give you a mission for no reason. If Hashem is giving you a test, there must be a reason. If you are experiencing anything in your life, has to be a reason. Nothing exists for nothing. There has to be. So, if someone called you, and you picked up the phone, and the conversation was about nothing, they just want to know how you're doing, there must be a reason. If you were looking for a book and you happen to see a certain book that you haven't read or that you did read but you forgot to finish, there has to be a reason. If you look at your bank and there's too much money or too little money or whatever it is, it's not what you thought it is, must be a reason. If your kids woke up on the left side of the bed and they're screaming and yelling for absolutely no reason, must be a reason. If you can't find your shoes, must be a reason. Your wife's unhappy, your husband's unhappy, must be a reason. You got fired, must be a reason. You walked to work and you saw someone get hit by a car, must be a reason. Anything. Anything. That happens in your life must have a reason. Must. But I don't mean a reason for everyone else except you. A reason specifically meant for you. For you to see, for you to experience, for you to use, to build. The Cheshbon of Shemaim, the accounting of Shemaim is so precise. When they say that there's no such thing as suffering without sin, the Chachamim say this is why everyone should make sure that they're very close to someone that's righteous and to as many righteous people as possible. Why? If they're righteous, that means that usually there's no punishment that's supposed to come to them. If they're righteous, there's tests, but that's individual tests. But punishment's not going to come to them. Why does it affect you as their friend? Why? Why does it affect you if you're their student? You have a rabbi that's very holy. You have a father that's very holy. You have a son that's very holy. Why? Why is it? It's, it's them. It's not you. Everybody tells me all the time, no, no, my, my my father was a rabbi. Okay, but you don't keep Shabbat. How does it affect you? He's, he's in Ghanai. Then what about you? No, no. Here I'm telling you, connect to someone holy. Alive, but holy. Alive though. If he's dead, it's not going to help you as much. Why? Because if Hashem has to bring a midatadin, Hashem, the Malachamavit comes and says, Hashem, you have to do something, you have to punish this so and so person. Why? He made a punishment, he did something, and you have to punish him. Hashem says, okay, you're right. We tried, we tried, we tried, he didn't do chuvah, gotta punish him. But before we punish him, we have to see who's going to be affected by this. And Hashem looks at the entire circle of everyone that's connected to this person that's supposed to be punished. He may lose his life, but it's going to affect other people, not just him. So he looks at his wife, oh, she's wicked too. Okay, he looks at his sons, oh, he's wicked too. He looks at the daughter, oh, they're wicked too. He looks at the neighbor, oh, he's wicked too. Everybody's wicked. The father, the mother, everyone's wicked. Everybody does not reshine like him. But they all deserve it for whatever thing they did in the past. 20 years ago, they violated Shabbat. 20 years ago, they did, they did something. They all deserve to have this suffering of experiencing a Hashem achem somebody in their family dying. It's not just about Him. It also, they have to deserve it also. Because the Midat Adin is precise. The punishment of Shemayim is not aimless. It's not, Hashem doesn't just shoot bullets and see where it hits. It has to be precise. He has to know who's going to be affected. Everyone has to also deserve it. The wife, the husband, the kids, the uh, the uh, cousins, the neighbors, the this and this. And then he said, well, hold on a second, hold on a second. Look, look, his friend. His friend that, remember his friend from 15 years ago, we used to learn with him, Chavrutah. Yeah, they don't talk anymore, but he still checks on him on Facebook once in a while. He checks, says hi on, says hi. If he dies, the friend's going to find out. The friend at this point the last 15 years continued learning. He did chuva shlema, he's a tzaddik, kadosh. If he finds out that he died, he's going to be very sad. He doesn't deserve to be sad, he's tzaddik. For him, I'll give him more time to chuvah. For, him, for the tzaddik, not for the guy that uh, deserves the punishment, not for his mother, not for his sister, not for his kids, not for all the things that are logical. For the guy, he doesn't even know, is connected to his life in some way, or shape, or form. The guy that did tshuva, why? He's going to hear about it. He's going to suffer. He doesn't deserve to suffer. Why? It's midah connected midah. It's measure for measure. Him, he doesn't deserve. Therefore, you don't get punished. That's why smart people connect themselves with as many righteous people as possible. Also another thing, another zgula for a person that's smart, that wants to live a long life, should make sure that he gets as many people in the world to depend on him as possible. This is why anyone that's rich and doesn't give an enormous amount of tzedakah to as many people as possible is a fool. Why? Because that staka is what's going to save you from Mavit. Not just because of the saying staka tatzimi the staka is going to save a person's life, but because that person that has money, Hashem gave him an extra amount of money. I saw somebody send me a video, three-minute video, of different, really, really rich Jewish people. And some of them are very religious, some not so much. And I don't know what their cheshbonot are. I don't know what they what what they give, what they don't give. But I can tell you that anyone that actually has money and doesn't give an enormous amount of money to different parts of, of Torah, there's no words to describe his foolishness. And the reason why is because that staka can actually give him 120 years. Why? When you give staka, first of all, gemara sechit. Baitzah, 16A. Masakat Rosh Hashanah, 16B. Says that Hashem pays for the tzedakah. Meaning, you give tzedakah, Hashem gives you the money back. You give a million, Hashem gives you a million. You give two million, Hashem gives you two million or more. Whatever you give, all you're doing is you're taking it from Hashem's pocket, you're putting it in their pocket, and then Hashem says, oh, okay, okay, let me give it back to you. So if you have real emunah, you're never going to have Second thoughts about giving stakah, but even more so, you want a zgula, to live a long life. Hashem says, "Listen, you became my partner when you gave stakah. You publicized my Torah. You help people do tshuva. Good for you. But now is the biggest thing. People are depending on this stakah. The guy that you're giving him 500 bucks a week, the guy that you're giving him 500 bucks a week or 100 dollars a week or five whatever it is, he's now got to a point he depends on it." You've become his salary. You've become part of his salary. He depends on his Shabbat table to be filled with food that comes from your money. Which means, if I take you to the next world, he's going to suffer. He doesn't deserve to suffer. He's tzaddik. You have another 10 years to live. He'd, you put yourself in a situation where another Jew depends on you, you buy yourself more time. That's what it means when it says, Tzedakah mavit. Hashem says, you give the Tzedakah, I'll put the mavit on hold. I'll put death on hold. So, when Avram Avinu was in a situation where he had a mitzvah to fulfill, and now Hashem told him, No. He told Hashem, Hashem, this doesn't make sense. Hashem, this does not make sense. When you told me that my son is going to give me all these different blessings, I said, great. Then you told me I have to bring him as a sacrifice I said, great. Even though one contradicted the other, how could he bring me the blessing if he's dead? I didn't ask any questions. Why? It's Hashem's business. You're Hashem. There's no explanation needed. There's no explanation needed of how Hashem is going to bring salvation to your situation. <machshevotai>, lo My thoughts are not like your thoughts. Hashem says, you're thinking Hashem is going to give you money so you can buy the car. And He's going to give you money through XYZ. Hashem says, you thought it, I'm not going to do it. Why? My thoughts are not like your thoughts. You thought I was going to give you the money through your job. Who says I'm going to give it to you through your job? You? What you you, Who's got here? If you thought it, I'm not doing it. Meaning when you try to give Hashem different help, assistance, you try to help Hashem run the world, Hashem says, my thoughts, I don't even think like you. You're thinking that you're going to get the money in a logical, rational way. You're going to go to work, you're going to wake up at 6 a.m., you're going to pray. You're going to go. You're going to get a raise after 15 years of working there and hopefully not get fired. And they're going to give you a raise. And eventually, you're going to be able to afford a house. And after working for the house for 30 years, finally going to pay off the mortgage. And finally, you're going to be able to retire to die in peace. That's the plan. The American plan. Shem says, nice plan for them. You? Different plan. I'm going to afford a house. They fired me. We'll give you a different job. How am I going to afford Shiva, I'm not getting enough money. I'll give you money in a different way. How am I going to teach my kids Torah? I, uh, I just did chuvam, thirty five years old. Don't worry, I'll send him a teacher. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? I'm going to do this. How I'm going to do that. Don't worry. I'm God. I'm going to. I don't need your help. Just keep doing what I told you to do. Avram Avinu Rabotai says to Hashem, When you told me to kill my son, I didn't ask questions. Why? You don't I don't need to explain your actions. But now when you tell me not to, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Why does it make sense? If you wanted to see whether I was gonna do it or not, you know what's in my heart. You know I was going to do it. Why do you need to give me a test? If you want to know whether I'm going to do it or not. You already know. You don't need to bring me all the way to this mountain with the donkey, with Eliezer, with it's... You don't need to do the whole thing. You know I was going to do it. What do you need a test for? You know what's in my heart. If it was, you knew I was going to do it, then why'd you stop? Do you do things for no reason? Does that make any sense for God to do things for no reason? These are very, very serious questions. These are very fundamental questions to Judaism. If Hashem knows what's in your heart, why does He test you? And if he knows what's going to happen, what's the point? What's the point? Avraham Avinu is asking the same question. Rabotai. What do you think the story about Avraham Avinu is to tell you a story? Remember what we said in the Rambam says in Murei Nebuchim, in uh, chapter three, section fifty. The reason why we have stories in the Torah is not because it's a history book, but rather because we learn the ways of God through the stories. The reason why we have the stories of Avraham, Avinu, Yitzhak Avinu, Yaakov Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, and all of the others is not for the story itself, but rather to understand God to the best of our abilities. The ways of God. So the question is, if... Hashem already knew what's in his heart. What's the purpose of the trial? So Hashem responded to Avraham. He says, first off, I didn't tell you to kill your son. I just told you to bring him up to the mountain as a sacrifice. I never said kill him. I told him, bring him to the mountain as a sacrifice. That's all I said. I didn't say kill You decided to kill. You added. So first and foremost, I didn't change my mind. I never said to kill him. That's one. From here we learn, Tai. it's very, very important to know exactly what Hashem said. A lot of people like to say things in the names of rabbis. Or there's an ala'cha that says so-and-so. When I first started doing tshuva, one time I was invited to somebody's house. And I knew a little bit, I didn't know much. But I knew that you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. I knew that you knew some basic things. I knew that Hashem is very serious about certain things. And he was a smart guy, not in a nice way. That uh, we're having a discussion with after the Knesset, and uh, anyway, we we're talking about something. We start talking about Shabbat, and I said, uh, You know, you're not allowed to have Gayat Zamichalel Shabbat go up and, uh, as an aliyah to the Torah. You're not allowed to have him as a chazan, he's not allowed to be a cantor, you're not allowed to be a chazan for the Keilah. he's not allowed. To, you're not allowed to bring him up as an aliyah. And Rabbi Vadya only allows him to have an aliyah if it's going to create a machloket, a big fight. But only if you have others to go before and after him. Meaning, you put above and beyond what you're supposed to on Shabbat. So you're only supposed to do seven on Shabbat. But if you do mosifim, now you're going to let, let's say, you have one guy to a Mechal Shabbat, so now you're going to have eight instead of seven. Meaning, he doesn't really count. He doesn't really count. So we're talking about this. And you know how to have a guy, there's a guy in the Buknesset that not only was a chazan, was also reading from a Torah, and so on and so forth, doing a lot of things. And says, so it's not allowed. This guy is considered 100% idol worshiper. So this guy tells me, goes, show me. Where, where does it say that? Now at the time, I didn't remember where it said it. I said it says it in many books, says it in different places, says it. It's not like I created it. I so said, I remember one source. I remember, oh, it says in Pashat Ki you look what it says, Hashem says, someone's so on and so forth, a few different things. He goes, yeah, yeah, but that's your commentary. You translated it that way. I'm like, no, that's what it means, literally. And also if you look at Rashi, he goes, yeah, but what does it say, the actual halacha in the book? Show me in the book. And it really annoyed me. It really, really annoyed me. I'm showing him a verse in the Torah says you're not allowed to do certain things. What's the question? He says, no, no, fine. But we don't learn Allah from verses in the Torah. We learn Allah from Shulchan Aruch. We learn Allah from Yakut Yosef. We learn Allah from uh, all the different books that talk about Allah specifically. We don't learn, we don't take, like many people that are just starting out, especially if they're converting or they want to convert... They look at the chumash, and they decide, oh, this means this, so I'm not supposed to do this. They they decide to become Rambam, or Rabbi Akiva. They're going to start translating the verse to what it means alakha-wise. You you don't make alakha based on your understanding of a verse. That's not how you make alakha. The law is, is already decided. What the understanding from the verse, we already have somebody that did it. We don't need you. It was already made by the sages. It's so already from Mount Sinai. We have the Mishnah. We have after that the, the Gemara. We have Shuchan Aruch. We have uh, the Rambam. We have Bo Hashem, Plenty. We don't need you. We haven't been waiting 3,300 years for you. We know what the verse means. Your understanding, good for you. We're not we're not basking based on your understanding of the verse. No, thank you. But many people want to make Allah based on their understanding of the verse. This is the way of the Christians, by the way. We have the Christians are like oh this means this this means this this means that. So at the time I didn't know. It was still early on, and I'm telling the guy look this verse obviously means this Rashi says this he goes he says fine, whatever he says your understanding of it. Where does it say in Alachah that a Jew that violates Shabbat is considered an idol worshiper? I didn't know. I knew it said it somewhere. I knew it, Rambam said it. I knew it was written in the Shulchan Aruch. I knew it was written in different places. I just didn't remember the source off the top of my head. I'm on a computer. And I kept telling him, it's written. It's written. I, I, I didn't know the significance of what this means even. He like, you're making it up. I'm like, why would I make it up? What? Do I have a, some special business that makes money off of calling people idol worshippers? Like, what? What difference does it make? Like, what? And he just kept repeating the same thing over and over again. Show me, show me, show me, show me. And I found him very, very annoying. But in reality, he's right. I found him to be obnoxious. Even to this day, I think he's annoying. And I haven't seen him in years. Even to this day, I'm annoyed at the story. But in reality, he's right. In reality, he's 100% right. Rabotai... What we learned from Avraham Avinu, lesson number one, from this story of Akidat Yitzchak, you must know what it means. You cannot rely on someone's commentary of what he understood and how he said it. it be, if it says it in the book, if it says Shukhan Aruch, if it says in the Gemara, if it says it, good. You can take that to the bank. You go up to Shemaim, say, listen, I live my whole life believing that this is what it says. They said, you're right. You have something to rely on. You have something to rely on. But if you're going to tell them, listen, my rabbi told me I'm allowed to wear a wig. And my rabbi told me I'm allowed to drive on Shabbat to a And my rabbi told me that I'm allowed to wear a miniskirt. And my rabbi told me I could eat at a vegan restaurant even though it's not kosher. And my rabbi told me this, and my rabbi told me that. They're going to say, you and your rabbi are going to have the same villain and genum. Why? But he said it. Didn't you say somewhere that if the rabbi told you then the rabbi gets punished. Just yes, he gets punished, and you get punished. It's not just him. Why? Why don't you find out? Why don't you verify? Why don't you verify? But I thought the rabbi knows. Okay, but if I when I sent you a guy to give you a deal. Hey, Mister uh, Reuven, uh, I want to sell you a uh, house. It's worth five million, but I want to sell it to you for one million. Worth five million. I want to sell it to you for one million. Did you double check? Yeah, of course, I double checked. Why did you double check? He told you it's worth five million. Why don't you take his word that it's worth five million? You could have made four million in one second. So maybe he's lying. I double checked because maybe he's lying. He says it's worth five million, but who says he's right? He said it's worth five million, and I'm buying it for one million, but who says he's right? Maybe he's lying. Maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. He made a mistake. I had to double check. Oh, so for your pocket, you double checked. But for your neshama, you didn't. For your pocket, you double checked. For this world, you double checked. But for ulama ba, you didn't double check. The rabbi said you could wear a wig. You said, oh, I'm relying on the rabbi. But the 127 plus scheme that said, no, you didn't rely on that. When it affected your pocket, you double-checked, but when it affected Allah and you didn't double-check. You said, oh, it's the rabbi's fault. You cannot say it's the rabbi's fault. So all of those people said, no, 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 the Lubavitcher rabbi said this, and my local rabbi said this, and this rabbi said that, I'm going to take that to the bank. They're going to say, check returned. You have to double-check. You have to double-check. That's why the women must send their husbands to go learn Torah. That's how you're going to know. You're taking care of kids. You're taking care of the house. You're not going to have enough time to become Tamidah chachama. You're not Bruria. You have to learn. Okay, send your husband, I'll teach you. But if you keep telling your husband, why don't you spend time with me? We can watch a movie together. Let's go to the park together. Okay, we are go to the park together, but we're also going to go to home together because none of us know what to do. You have to send your husbands to go learn Torah, not to your girl night out. You have to send them to go learn Torah. It's the only way you're going to know. A woman gets ulama because of her husband's Torah, she doesn't get ulama for having a girl's night out. It's the opposite. You have to send your husbands to go learn Torah. Must. And husbands, if you're not learning Torah, why are you here? I don't mean the sure. I mean the world. What's the difference between you and a cow? This is not my question. This is Gemara's question. Gemara's question is, why does a person eat meat if he doesn't learn Torah? Gemara Masech Pesachim says, why does he eat meat if he doesn't learn Torah? The meat came from a cow. Why does he why does he have the right to eat the cow? If he does not learn to why, he doesn't know that he has that he's what, what do you what do you think what makes you better than than a cow? Why? Because you could talk, cow could talk too in cow language. Why? Because you eat, she eats too. Why? Because you have kids, she has kids too. Also carries a baby for nine months. That's why the Indians think that she's God. She has labor for nine months. She sleeps. You sleep, she eats. You eat. What's the what's the difference between you and a cow? If you have no Torah, there's no difference. The Gemara says someone doesn't learn Torah shouldn't be allowed to eat a cow. Amaretz should not be allowed to eat a cow. It's very very critical. People don't learn Torah. Why? You don't even know why you are. What gives you the right to kill a cow? She's less worried than you. She probably has more emunah than you anyway. She's not stressed out. She's not worried about a mortgage. Did you ever see a uh, cow going bald? From stress? So, very critical. First lesson we learned from Avraham Avinu, you have to really know what God said. Obviously, through the sages, what does the verse actually say? Not what you think. What does God say? God didn't tell Avraham Avinu, go kill your son. Second thing is, he tells him, okay, so fine, but you knew that I was going to do it. Why didn't you tell me that I'm doing it wrong anyway? Why would you give me the test anyway? Now anyone that thinks that God tests you for his own sake has not the smallest clue about God. If God wants to know what you're going to do, he could just look into the future. It's the same thing as the present of the past to him. He knows what you're going to do. If God wants to know what's in your heart, He could just look in it. Hi. It's full of truths, full of lies, full of Yerat Shemaim, full of Kfirah, whatever it's in. Whatever is in there, He knows. The test is not for Him. The test is for you. The test is for you. As I told you, this this Sfat Emet says that Hashem is good and therefore He created good. He wants to share the good. He wants to give you good. But He also has to have a reason. He must have a reason to give you good. Because giving you good for no reason is bad. It's bad. if you keep giving your kids reward for absolutely no reason, all you're going to have is little mini Hitler's. Eventually, they're going to want more and more and more and more and more. And eventually, you're not going to be able to give them what they want. They're going to want to kill you. That's what happened to David the Melech. He never told Avshalom no. Eventually, and he kept giving him everything. Eventually, Avshalom says, okay, I want to be king. And for the first time in his life, King David said to Avshalom, no. Avshalom says, I'll kill you. What do you mean no? You told me yes my whole life. I don't know what no means. Telling your kid yes to everything is not good for them. Needless to say, it's not good for Hashem to give you everything you want either. You have to deserve it. So Hashem wants to give you good. Now, how do you get to a point of deserving it? You have to pass tests. He wants to know do you believe in Him or do you just want stuff? Do you believe in Hashem? Or do you actually just want stuff? You're doing everything that you're doing because you want something from Him. Now, even though Hashem knows that you have good in you and you intend to do good and you plan to do good and you're going to do good, he still can't reward you for it. Why? That's all just potential. He cannot reward you for potential alone. Just like he cannot punish you for potential alone. The Chachalin ask, if you knew that Ishmael is going to turn into all these uh, ISIS members, all these uh, people that are trying to kill slaves for generations, if you knew that Esau is going to turn into the Christians that uh, kill a lot of Jews, why didn't Hashem just kill them all? Not even kill them, just kill Esau and kill Ishmael. Why didn't he just kill them? Kill Ishmael especially. At the end of the days, you know how much we're going to suffer from these Arabs? Just kill Ishmael already. We don't have to deal with it. The answer is Rabotai. At the time Ishmael was around, there's no ISIS. There's no terrorism. He didn't make the sin yet. You can't punish him for a potential sin. But the same way you can't punish him for potential mitzvah. The fact that you have potential to become a Talmud Chacham does not mean that Hashem is going to reward you as if you are a Talmud Chacham. You have to earn it. You must go through the fire just like Avraham Avinu for Hashem to reward you for going through the fire. You must go through the trial. The test is not for him. It's for you. He's trying to build you. He's trying to reward you. But he can't justify rewarding you for no reason. And he can't build you without a test. Now when you first start working out, if you exercise, as you guys can see, I'm very muscular. When I was was young, I used to work out. In the beginning, you could barely lift a pencil. Pencil is a little heavy. After a while, pencil is not heavy. You lift a box, empty one though. Then you lift the shoe, and eventually you lift the weight, and eventually you can lift the house, and so on and so forth. But at one point, I got to a point where I was, uh, it was squatting an enormous amount of weight. Literally, it was like squatting a house. But it got to a point. Where just to get warmed up, this is in my college days. I was very, very strong, and just to warm up, I used to squat four hundred pounds to warm up, meaning to get started. Just to like you know, like if you like you're just stretching, I had to lift four hundred pounds on my back and go up and down like twenty times just to get going. So eventually, I go up to the I don't know half a house that I was lifting at the time. And people would always ask me, "It's like, why don't you just do less? So why don't you just stay at that level? I mean, it's already a lot. It's already a lot—four hundred pounds. Most people can't lift two hundred. You're already doing four hundred. It's—it's unbelievable. The, the bar was bending at the end. By the time I was finished the workout, the bar itself was bending. So why even bother? Just do what you're doing in the beginning. It's more than everybody here already. What's the way what's the, what showing off? I said, no, it has nothing to do with showing off. I wish I could do it at the house. I don't have to go to the gym. Save myself the time. So what's the point? I said, the only way it affects my body is if I keep adding more. It got to the point where you get strong enough that the old weight, the old test, no longer affects you. If I just lifted a hundred pounds, yes, it may be heavy for you. It's extremely heavy for me today. The pencil, I'm back to the pencil now. Back to the pencil. Back to the pencil. It's heavy. The pencil is heavy for me today. Today, hopefully I can lift the pencil. That's why I only have posted no pencils. Today, it's the pencil. But then... It got to a point where the pencil is not doing anything, and the hundred pounds is not doing anything, and the two hundred pounds is not doing anything, and it's just not doing anything. Why bother? It had to be a lot of weight in order for it to, fa- to affect the body, in order for it to rip the muscles, in order for them to grow. You know, when you work out, you actually have to rip your muscles apart. It's actually, if you look at what happens under your skin, it's horrific, but it's healthy. You build your muscles. Anyway, the point is is that the two hundred pounds didn't affect the three hundred pounds didn't affect the four hundred pounds didn't affect, and so on and so forth. The same thing goes, Rabotai, with your neshama. When Hashem gave you a test when you were still young, either young in age or young in tshuva, your test was going to beknisit. Not even going to Bikniset every day, not even going to Bikniset at 6 a.m., but just going to the Biknisset once. That was the test. Hashem said, above this, he can't do. But he can't do more. I can't. If I send him an email, say, hey, by the way, Betzalel, you must show up every day at 6 a.m. Betzalel says, I quit. He can't handle it. Every day, I'm not even going yet. You want me to go every day at 6 a.m.? I'm sleeping at 6 a.m. At 6 a.m., I'm having my third dream. What do you want for my life at 6 a.m.? <laughs> it's only my third. If I was at my sixth dream, then maybe. I'm only my third dream. It's just started. Leave me alone at 6 a.m. In the beginning, just go to the Biknesset. That's the test. You grew up a little bit. You realize going to Biknesset once a year is not enough. You got to go every day. Okay, I'm going at 10. When no one else is there. Fine. Hashem says, just go. A little more time passes. Okay, you got to go a little earlier. The Biknesset test doesn't work anymore. Okay, now you got to learn a half hour after Bikneset. If I told Betzalel, really you have to learn an hour and a half to two hours after Bikneset. But says, so, oh, I quit. I quit. I'm going back to the Bikneset uh, once a week. I quit. Hashem says, no, no. I'm not going to give you that test. Half hour, once a week. Half hour, once a week the same exact thing goes with every single one of your tests in your life. In the beginning, the biggest test was for you to do Shema Israel. Then it was for you to actually understand what it means. Then it was for you to apply it in a situation of danger. Something happened in life and you had to remember. My only hope is... My only hope is the Shema Yisrael I've been practicing for two years. Shem something happened. My only hope is not my money, not my intellect, not my friends, not my family, nothing. My only hope is the Shem HaLokeno, Shem Echad. I've been saying Shema Yisrael for years. Now I know what it means. Now I can use it. Now it's game time. Now it's game time. But he can't tell you day one you need to know what Shema Yisrael really means. Why? I quit. I can't make it. It's too heavy. Pencil. Give me the pencil. It's too heavy. Hashem gives you tests. In the beginning they're small. And then they get bigger. And then they get bigger. And then they get bigger. And they get bigger. And And you know when they end? When your body ends. When your body in this world ends and you now transfer to ulama himet. When your soul leaves your body and you go to ulama emet. So for all of you that are just praying to Hashem, Hashem, no more tests, all you're doing is praying to die. No more tests, Hashem. Okay, die then. If you are alive, you're going to have tests. If you're alive, you're going to have tests. And the tests will get bigger. That's a guarantee. For your money back. Go to Hashem, ask him, he gives you a full refund. But you have to go up there. You can't stay here with Hashem. <laughs> we don't give refunds. So the point is, Abutai is that all of these prayers oh, I need easy chuva, I need no more tests, I need no more trials and tribulations, no more money issues. No more this issue, no more that issue, no more this. No, You're praying to die. If you're alive, you will have tests. Now, what's the secret? How do you pass these tests? The tests are so difficult. Just thinking about the tests that I endured in my past, I want to cry. Some of the things I experience in my life, and I'm sure some of the experience you guys are experiencing now or in your life, you just think about them. You want to cry. And this is actually Le'abdil for well, a Bible of tzaddikim one day, but they say that at the times of the Mashiach, Hashem is going to show the tzaddikim a huge mountain. And then a Shaim, a small mountain, a small little hill. And both are going to cry. Both are going to cry. It said that you can look at the big mountain. And look, at this mountain—where's this mountain made up? It's made up of all of the tests they had in their life. Look, at the beginning it was I lost my keys, and then after that was I lost my car, and then after that I uh, lost some money, and then after that and the tests get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and I stayed true to Hashem. Look how much I—look at this huge mountain. Look how much I accomplished. It was so hard, but now I'm here, and they're gonna cry. From reliving all the difficulty, but yet the cry is of happiness that it's behind them. The Shaim on the other hand, they have a small little mountain, a small little hill, that you can just walk over. Why is it a small little hill? Shem says, Look, I give you a small little test, and you aren't even willing to pass that. If you would have just passed this one small test, you'd also have a Lamaba they also cry. What do they cry about? Look how close I was to having ulama ba, but now I don't. So I think sometimes about the past and all the pain and all the suffering and all, it's hard. It's hard. But rabotai, as long as you are still alive, you're going to have bigger tests. Tests today are preparing you for the test tomorrow. Now, what can give you hope from this dire news that you just got? Now, this sounds like a horrible, horrible thing. It's not. It's actually good news. Why is it good news? Why should it be the best news you found out in your entire life? You learn from Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu Rabotai, when Hashem told him, "Listen, kill your son." Hashem, he understood from Hashem, kill your son. He went and tried killing his son. Hashem said, I'm going to reward you to your son. He said, I'm going to reward my son. No problem. Whatever he said, I do. Whatever I said, I do. Whatever he said, I do. Whatever he said, I do. No questions asked. He kept kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going. How do you have such emunah? How do you get to such emunah? How? How do you get to a point, Hashem says this, you do this. You don't ask any questions, even though it contradicts itself. The Hiddush Rabbotai is that when you understand that it came from God, there's no test. There's no test. Why? It's from God. What is it like? All of you that went to school, you know there's two types of tests. There's a test that you're guaranteed to pass, because it's open book. And there's a test that only if you studied you're gonna pass. Closed book. When a teacher tells you, listen, you have a test, you have an unlimited amount of time to pass this test. You have a hundred questions to answer. All of the questions and the answers are in this book. And you can use the book to take the test for as much time as you'd like. Begin. Is that really a test? Or just a mental exercise? Why? Because he just gave you the answers. All you got to do is just look for them. Okay, it's page 13. Okay, page 17. Okay, page 18. All you're doing is just copying and pasting. All it is is a mental exercise. Why? It's an open book test. If it's a closed book test, if it's a closed book test, only if you studied it, only if you've prepared for a year, five years, ten years, twenty years, depending on the test, only if you've prepared are you going to pass. But even if you've prepared, sometimes you didn't prepare enough. That's the difference of whether you have Emunah or not. If you have Emunah, it's an open book test, regardless of the test. If you don't have Emunah, it's a closed book test. You may not pass. You may not pass. If you have Emunah, meaning you know this is from God, no one else. This is from God. It's unusual. It doesn't make sense. It contradicts everything that I know. It goes against everything that I know. It hurts. It this, it that. All the different things. All the different excuses. All the different issues. Bottom line, is it from God or not? If it's from God, it's an open book test. If you understand logically that it's from God, it's an open book test. Why? It's going to be okay. He's not going to get me a test I can't pass. There's no point. He's not going to give me a test that I cannot pass. There's no point. It's like a mother telling her son, Listen, now, honey, I know you're only three years old, but can you do me a favor? Can you pick up the semi-trailer over your head? She's just not going to ask the three-year-old to do it. Why? She knows he can't do it. There's no point of asking. Only a psychopath will do such a thing. By thinking that Hashem gave you a test you cannot pass, Chash v'shalom, you're thinking that Hashem is crazy. If He gave it to you, that means you can pass it. The only difference is, is how you treat the test. Open book or closed book. If you've trained your emunah, if you've trained yourself to have emunah at a time of need, it's an open book test. If not... You may not pass it because it's a closed book. You had to study a lot. You had to study a lot. I'll finalize this with just a couple of things. There are many people that say they have Emunah, but at the moment, at the moment that Emunah is tested. At the moment, the bank account does not have exactly what you thought it should be. At the moment, you don't get the raise you thought you deserve. At the moment, the woman of your dreams is now the woman of your nightmares. At the moment, life hits you in the face. Not quite the way you'd like it. Many people go off and they blame God for it. And them a katuvomel, it's written about them, people They honored me in their lips and they gave me lip service. They said things, they believe, they have emunah, Yeah, I love you, Hashem. Talk about love of Hashem, talk about love of Hashem. We have emunah in Hashem at the moment of Hashem. Mimeni. Really inside their heart, far, far away. People talk a big game. We have emunayin Hashem. We love Hashem. But there is a gvul. There's a line. The question is, where's your line? Everyone here believes in God. Even the atheist believes in God to a certain extent. He just doesn't want to. Everyone believes that there has to be a creator. someone that's done tshuva, someone that calls themselves religious, obviously claims to believe in God more than the average. The question is, how much do you believe in God? How much? Where's your line? Now when you're sitting here enjoying a shiur, hopefully, it's very easy to believe in God. You're hearing words of Hashem spitting in your face right now. You're getting smacked with different Of course, it's easy. You're here. But what about you have an appointment at eight thirty in the morning with a million dollar contract, and you got a flat tire, and there's no chance in the world you're going to make the appointment? Do you still believe in God? What about if the mortgage check just bounced? The mortgage check for the house, the kids rely on this house, just bounced. Do you still believe in God? Your best friend just stabbed you in the back. You still believe him? You got fired from your job. You worked there for 20 years. You still believe in God? Your number one investment just turned to zero. You have become poor. You went from rich to poor in an instant. You still believe? Your husband just hit you. You loved him, with him for 20 years. All of a sudden he became a The guy tried to kill you for no reason. You blaming God? You still believe in God? All these different nightmare tests that each one of us has to endure in our life. You just took your first rabbinical test and you failed. You feel like a loser. You believe in God? People get divorced and they blame God for it. People lose money, they blame God for it people get sick and they blame God for it. People go through hardship and all of a sudden that emunah and that love for Hashem that they claimed they had for so many years disappears as fast as you can even imagine. It all becomes like smoking mirrors. It's like it never existed. That's what the pasuk is saying. You said you believed. You honored me with your lips. But your heart was far from me. So the question is, Rabotai, where does the love and Amunai and Hashem end with you? That's what you have to work on. Just like you have speedometers for your cars to know what, how far and how fast you're going, You don't want to go too fast. You don't want to go too slow. You have an emunah meter. You have an emunah meter. You have a test. It's testing your emunah. Money, relationships, this, that, different things. You have constant tests. Those tests are to build you, to prepare you for the next one. Now, to finalize it all, is this when you understand when David the Melech said your stick and your shaft those are the ones that give me a my salvation my comfort David the I said this in the previous year, that David the is telling us that sometimes Hashem treats us Like we ran away. So he has to hit us. He has to hit us to get us back. Like little sheep. Don't know where to go. He has to hit us to get us back in. But sometimes we're not running away. We just need direction. So he tells us. He's with the shaft. Go here, go here, go here, go here. If you know that both the stick and the shaft are coming from Hashem. It gives you comfort. But the answer of how to get there. Is answered by this week's parasha. And this speaks parasha. We go over something that we've gone over at least a half a dozen times in the last several years. But it's never enough. We actually learn this every single day in tefillah and shachrit. When Am Yisrael got to the Sea of Reeds, behind them, Egyptians, wanted to kill them. Paul was so happy that they closed themselves out. There was no way for them to go. Behind them were the Egyptians. Right and left was an empty desert full of snakes and scorpions. They wouldn't survive. In front of them was an ocean that doesn't end. Pharaoh said they're doomed. They've actually gone head first into a dead end street. Am Yisrael cries to Hashem doesn't know what to do. Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Why are you screaming to me? Tell, tell them to move forward. Nachshon ben Aminadav goes into the sea. Hashem splits the ocean. And the story goes of how miraculously Hashem split the ocean and made miracle after miracle if you learned a specific Midrashim of how many miracles actually happen inside the ocean while they're passing it. You'd wish you were there. Fruits were growing from the ground, and the ground flattened out. Water became fresh water. Ima- amazing, amazing. And after the enemy came in, he destroyed the enemy and let the Jews live, and so on and so on. Amazing things. But then it says this. <laughs> Here Hashem Idbarach is giving us exactly the secret of what Avraham Avinu was trying to tell us all along. Just literally. It says, And Amisrael saw the great hand of Hashem and how he inflicted it upon Egypt. And the people feared Hashem and that Emunayin Hashem and then Moses his servant despite the miracles that they've had for a year, seeing Egypt turn from master to slave, seeing the plagues come in an unnatural way, not like this other guy said, seeing the frogs come and the blood come and the uh, ice and lava and all these different unnatural things happen in front of their eyes. When they got to the Sea of Reeds, they still lacked some emunah. They still lacked some emunah. That's why the sea didn't split. They lack the merit. Hashem says, do something to prove it. Do something to prove you believe in me, not just say words. Words I have, everyone says words. Everyone says, everyone says, I believe. Everyone says, I believe in God. Until the moment the truth comes, and they don't believe in anything. Everyone says, I believe. Now, do you believe during the trials and tribulations? When they got to the ocean, not everyone believed. and ben Nadav took a test, passed it for everyone. Everyone passed. But now they finally after a year of tests, a year of trials and tribulations, a year of miracles, now it says we saw the hand of God. Finally they saw this is God. This must be God. There is no other God. There's nothing else. And immediately it says, and they feared Him. Meaning once we realize it's from God, the first reaction that a normal person has, a living person has, is fear. Why? You realize everything depends on him. If your Parnassah, your Zivug, your children, everything depends on him, if everything depends on him, of course you're going to fear him. And then it says, they feared Hashem, and then they had Emunah in him. Meaning Rabotai, to finalize everything we just learned you want to be like avraham avinu you want to be like moshe rabenu you want to be like amishael at its peak this is the map first and foremost realize what avraham avinu realized his whole life everything is from god the trials the tribulations the big tests, the small tests, the uh, the leaf falling from the tree, the shoe being missing, the key being missing, the job you got, the job you got fired from, the friend you have, the friend you don't have, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Everything is from God. Once you realize everything is from God, you should be scared. You should be scared. Once you have an understanding that you need to be scared of Hashem, you have your Hashemite, you have a foundation. Of Yirat Shemaim, then we work on Emunah. Why? Because if you have Yirat Shemaim, that Yirat Shemaim is going to get you to have the Emunah at the time of need. At the time of need, at that big test that you're finally going to have one day, Mashiach is going to come. It's going to be very hard, Rabbatai. Don't think Mashiach is going to show up and everybody's going to be okay. It's going to be very hard. But if you have a foundation based on Yirat Shemaim, you'll have the emunah to see Mashiach. You'll have the emunah to survive Mashiach. But without Yerat Shemaim as a foundation, you're never going to have the emunah. And if you don't have the emunah, you're still going to have to explain the first step. How is everything from God? How is everything from God if you have no emunah? The two can't connect. Everything cannot be from God... If you have no emuna, You're going to start using your own rational sense to try to break things down. Oh no, yeah, they split the ocean, but it was a tsunami. Yeah, the, 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 the money came in, but that's just coincidentally because he got paid that day. Oh yeah, I met her on that day, but that's only because she was looking at the same time. And it's coincidence for this and coincidence for that. And everything is a coincidence. It's never God. That is a poisonous Torah. You want a healthy Torah? You want a Torah that's going to actually mean something at the moment of need? It must have that connecting point. That's Yirat shemaim. You connect everything to Hashem from the beginning, you're going to have Yirat shemaim to depend on. That Yirat shemaim is going to get you to have the emunah you're going to need anyway. The emunah you're going to need anyway, whether you like it or not. Why? Because the test is still going to be given. The only difference is, are you going to treat it like an open book test or a closed book test? If you have a munah, it's an open book test. Okay, it's hard. But you know you're going to pass. Why? He gave it to you. That means you can pass. You know it's under control. If it's a closed book test, hopefully you studied hard enough.